Hello. Just realized my microphone is off again. I've been doing so well with that lately. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to another episode of Merged Worlds, where hopefully I will entertain you for a couple of hours. Um, thank you for coming by. You give me the opportunity to share my story once again. <clears throat> um, as always, I'm going to take a couple minutes to recap where we are, what we're looking at now. Um, talk to you about something a little bit different that's going to happen in the story most likely next week um, that I have to forewarn people for. And then we're going to do something a little bit different that I haven't done in a long time. Um, I'm going to talk to you just a, spend a few minutes talking to you a, of a little bit behind the scenes of the Merged Worlds D&D side of things. Um, I am saddened to report that there is a piece of the story that is gone. I cannot find it. I've been through everything. I've every notebook I have, and there is a segment of the story, not a huge one, but an important small one, that I cannot find. So I know it. I'm going to be able to tell it, uh, but I won't have some of the reading parts like I do uh, most of the time now. And hello, Ashley. Um, so it will be a little bit more of an overall overview part of the story. Uh, but it is important for some of the stuff that will be coming up next. Um, so we're, we're going to kind of uh, have to address that. And that's the thing that I'm talk I was saying earlier that uh, is going to be a little bit different. Um, I have told in the past that I sometimes would tailor our... When we were playing this Merged Worlds as an actual Dungeons & Dragons campaign, I would sometimes try to tailor special events to match holidays. Uh, you may remember that there was a... Way back, there was an adventure where Darsh and Mercy were heading to Oramon in disguise, and they end up getting into this town of a witch and a headless horseman. That was our Halloween-themed Dungeons & Dragons uh, that we had that week, and I was able to work it into the story. I have another seasonal section of the story that um, happened in the middle of this adventure that I'm telling now, but technically happened before it. Before it. There was one week while we were playing that we paused this story and then went back in time a little bit and did a small story. It's a one-day side quest of the same characters, but that took place before the events that we're in right now. Because um, I wanted to do something. I had a what I thought was a fun and kind of funny idea for a uh, Halloween-themed thing, again. Halloween being my favorite. I have a Christmas one kicking around here, too, that's uh, outside of the timeline that I came across again today that I'm going to, uh, I'm going to share uh, eventually. Um, it's one of those ones I can go just about at any time. But this one, I, uh, this, this one is going to have an effect on the future, so it is something that I have to tell. So at one point, I'm going to pause this story, and we are going to go back in time six to eight months to an adventure that was just for Mercy and Artemis and some of their NPCs, uh, their followers and such. Something that they were involved in in the Lands of Serenity. That didn't involve Darsh or Dandy. They were out. This is before all the dreams and all of the solo adventures happened. This is something, just a Serenity story specifically, that would be important in the future. There are also a couple events, uh, small but overly important events, that happened during this story and the next chapter that aren't documented. 
they were very small things that had to happen to forward the story um, and made timelines a little challenging. Um, so where I place those in the story may not be exactly where they were in the original one, but they're pretty close. Um, they're not plot things for the story at hand, so it's not like it's going to ruin anything here, but uh, something that has to happen before the next chapter. It has to happen during this chapter sometimes. So because I couldn't find the piece of information I was looking for uh, in the notes, uh, in my booklets, I have books upon books of story and stuff that I use, and uh, could not find that section for the life of me. But I did find something kind of cool that I thought you might get a little bit of a kick out of. Going through the books, I found these two envelopes. One has a number one on it, one has a number two on it. And I've told you guys in the past that sometimes when I would be playing Dungeons & Dragons, at the beginning of a session, I would hand somebody envelopes. And at certain times in the story, I'd say, okay, open up envelope number one. It'd be a situation or something that I had set up. Uh, and if they played along and the stuff they did moved the story in that direction, we could use those. And sometimes they wouldn't. And so the envelopes just would never get open. But I found these two envelopes. They're the only two that I still have. And they're from Artemis's adventure where she and Draven were off to fight his brother. Um, and one of them is literally opened up and it says, Do you tell him you love him? And you circle yes or no. And the other one is, Do you accept him? Circle yes or no. And then she handed it back to me. Um, you can understand where we are in the story, how many of the things that we talk about everything involving Draven would have been very different had she chosen no. And she, and I gave her every situation to go either way. I didn't push her towards one or the other. Um, although, I think in her heart, she knew exactly where she was going to go long before we ever got to these. Um, hello, Colonel. Um, but those were from that, and I thought it was kind of cool that I'd come across those. I hadn't seen those in a little while. Um, today, I'm going to be showing you some maps and stuff. Well, maybe... Maybe today. If not today, it'll be it'll be next week. But I found some maps that are going to be coming up here um, that I'm going to try to hold up on screen if I can for you guys to see. But where we left off last time, let's get into the tale if we can. So, in our last exciting episode, um, Dandy had helped Blaze Path Warden, known as One Eye, defeat his father, the Were Panther in the mines of Whispering Hill and saving the town and its people. Um, at least one where Panther did get away. One of uh, the, uh, the the minions of the bad guy. But overall, they and One-Eye returned to Paxawal, where One-Eye split off from them before they got to the city, because he's a little more recognizable, giving his intentions of taking back the city and rebuilding the Thieves' Guild and uh, that he owed Michael and Dandy a very, very great debt. And one day, when they when they needed him, uh, he would he'll be ready to have that debt called upon. He takes that stuff very seriously. He also makes the comment that uh, Blaze Pathwarden died in Whispering Hills that day. That 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 is not who he is or who he's going to be. That life now that his father is gone is behind him. From this point on, he is Galen One Eye, and that's his thing. And then we go to Mercy, who helped take back, uh, went into the mine. It's like a kitty playing with something behind me. Went into the, um, 
or goes mine, found this scepter type thing that caused a lot of damage and have, is having it transported back to Serenity. And she returned it to the city gates, if you will, or the border uh, where she was, where she met with an ambassador from Ormon who uh, the meeting didn't go well. And Mercy didn't really have much intention of letting it go well. Um, there's nothing about um, that kingdom, Ormon, that she would ever want to be a part of. So it's something that she, uh, we knew that was going to end badly. Even when I wrote it, I knew it would end badly for the situation. But again, that was kind of the goal. Then she was returning back to Sereni. Um, Artemis was successful in finding all of uh, the clerics they believed in the town of the god of uh, d decay um, and that kind of stuff. And then she returned home only to find out that one of the Knights of the Light had been uh, fallen ill. Two of them. When it, going into the same, turned out that one of the leaders of the Knights of the Light was actually the leader of the cult. Um, and stabbing Tevin very, very savagely in the chest, left him for dead. He was sent to kill both Artemis and Tevin. But before he could kill Artemis, uh, Tevin used a very powerful spell that he has access to, probably his most powerful one, um, and used it to permanently remove that villain from the from the world. Um, and then, you know, Artemis was able to heal him up. He didn't die. Uh, Tevin's, Tevin's got some kick to him. He really, really does. Or not Tevin. Um, Kelvin. I keep saying Kelvin. Kelvin, the Kender. I'm sorry. And then and Darsh was on route looking for the pirates that are invading his water. Darsh hasn't got a lot of screen time in the last few episodes. Today, he's going to get a lot more. Because uh, a lot of his has been traveling by boat days at a time. So he hasn't had as much to do. Um, that will be resolved today. <clears throat> but then they entered into the a dream state for the third time. And this time, they were in a great arena, and they had to fight their fears. Uh, monsters and people from their past that, um, let's see, that, that basically haunt their dream. The people that they hate the most or fears, things of that nature. And they had to fight them in some interesting ways, but upon defeating them, they defeated whatever the shadowy black creature of doom that's causing all this. They still don't know what that person wants. But it's something that they have. And before they walked out the door, Danny noticed a blue rune on the wall a short distance away. And using that, found a secret door that allowed them to leave. Which, instead of going out the regular door, going out this door, seemed to make the spirit thing they defeated even angrier. <clears throat> and that is important. Hello, Teresa. So, everyone awoke from the dream and that's kind of where we left off. Um, Artemis and Dandy and Mercy all have some things that they're going to do over the next week. Because at this point, they assume in seven days they're going to have to go through this again. And now that they've taken care of their side adventures, they're all going to try to focus on this. You'll also remember that all of them have those orbs that allow them to speak to each other. This is the first opportunity <clears throat> where they're really able to reach out to each other because Artemis and um, Mercy have been away from home. They weren't where theirs were anyways. But now that they're home and they do verify that they are in fact going through this together, it's not just 
them themselves in their dreams and they're dreaming of their friends. Their friends are, in fact, in the dream with them. Uh, they, they have the ability to start researching what's causing that. They get to look into the bigger picture. Uh, well, Darsh is finally going to address this, his personal situation. Um, so I'm going to start with the other ones uh, and kind of say what they do over the next week uh, because Darsh's is going to take a bigger period of time today um, and I want to be able to devote to that without messing through. <clears throat> but over the next week, <laughs> there are some things that happen. So, they wake up. Artemis and Mercy, who were in the same room, if I remember correctly, um, being watched over, being prepared for this to happen. <clears throat> Um, Dandy was in a room with Michael, waiting for it. Michael was watching for it. And then Darsh was watching for it. He had his, uh, Garrig, his, his cleric, and uh, his friend Jordan there watching over him <clears throat> when they all went through that. So, upon waking, again, they're all very tired. It's like morning. You know, they're, they're asleep eight hours, but they wake up like they've not slept at all. So they're very, very tired. And even though they would love to sleep, Coming right out of the dream, there's a bit of a paranoia there. There's a, I don't want to go back into that. Uh, it's not a fear, per se. Um, it's just more of a, a, it's so uncomfortable, I don't want to deal with that again right now. That it's, even Dandy feels that, because it's not a fear, it's just a, ugh, it's an icky thing. It's kind of like if I, you, you stepped on a, a Lego, and you know that I have to walk, if I walk across this room to get a drink, I'm going to step on a Lego again. You're like, I'm going to put off getting that drink for, I don't care how thirsty I am. I'm going to wait a little bit for my foot to stop hurting before I walk over there and try to get that drink again. Uh, best example I could think of on the fly. <clears throat> um, and Darsh just got too much to go on to go back to bed. So, we move forward. The next day, Artemis and Mercy um, have made arrangements automatically to meet with Thakar. Uh, Thakar is the head of the Mage Tower in Serenity. He was not one of the ones there that built it, um, but he is the one who is now the head of the tower there. And he is really along the lines of a neutral mage, if you will. Uh, doesn't sway good or evil. He's a very fact-based. Although many mages have specialties, um, the young women don't really know what his are. It's never come up. So he's not. they're not sure. Um, but they make arrangements to go to the tower, A, to find out if he can tell them anything about the dream situation they're having, let him know about it. And number two, to find out what's going on with that scepter thing that they found. <clears throat> so, well, I guess it would help if I went to the right page, wouldn't it? So, Thakar Fireflame is his name. He's the head of the tower. He's an older mage, probably about 57. And I know a lot of people are like, hey, that's not old. In a medieval society, to live over 30 is considered old. And in many ways, Dungeons & Dragons is a medieval-style society. The common person who doesn't have access to a healing temple may not live past 30. So, And then the flip side of that, monsters, dragons, magic, living to an old age and all those things isn't super easy as well. So um, <clears throat> he's an older mage. Uh, he is bald, but he has a short white beard. Like short, like... Maybe my length a little longer. Like, he doesn't have, like, a long Gandalf kind of thing. But he's got a bit of a beard on him. Um, he's a, he's friendly and courteous, but he's a very direct person. He does not beat around the bush. Um, and he wears dark purple robes with a gold trim. Now, 
to Artemis and Mercy, that means nothing. In the world of wizards, it may mean something. But a lot of times, wizards don't really say what that is unless it's important. <clears throat> but he wears dark, dark purple robes with gold trim. And you're going to see me uh, mention robe colors. I have in the past, and I will do that again in the future, because in some situations, there may be links to some of that. And for the uh, Easter egg hunters in Merged Worlds, uh, there may be clues to other things if you can... Robes being an example, armor being one thing, races. Uh, there are clues sometimes hidden in there that might lead to the future that are there for the characters, the players, to find. Sometimes they did and sometimes they didn't. Until after the fact, and then they felt silly. Um, but there's that. So they meet with the guy in his office. Uh, they go to the tower. Um, they're taken up to his room. Of course, he's invited invites them into the office. There's refreshments there. Uh, they take whatever water, wine, whatever they're thirsty for, um, and then you know, he gives them the chance to go ahead and explain the dreams. And of course, he wants as much detail as possible. Um, and this is the first time where they've really got to go through detail together, um, and that's pretty important because in each of these situations, they find that their dreams are identical. Oh, it's not like, when well, my dream, it was actually a this kind of thing there. You guys were there, but it was slightly different. The dreams have been identical uh, between Mercy and Artemis at this point. They can't directly speak for Darsh or Dandy, um, but reaching out to them, they'll you know, verify that here in the future. They spend a good hour or so going through all the detail, and then he asks a bunch of questions, has them retell some parts over again. Um, when that's all done, um, he says that as odd and strange as that is, it does remind him of something. He goes, I, I, I don't want to say anything yet because, because I'll be honest, I'm not sure. But this sounds familiar to me. Um, I would like to look into it if you allow me some time. And they're like, well, we got all the time in the world, but technically six more days from now it should happen again. He's like, I understand that. He's like, uh, he goes, I will do my best to make as much haste as I possibly can. Um, but uh, it sounds familiar, but I don't know where. Uh, and I will definitely, myself, and I'll have my apprentices and we will look into that. And find what we can. The, the Mage Tower is a part of Serenity now. They are a part of that society. And Serenity's future is the direct future of the Mage Towers themselves. And if you'll remember, uh, Oromon hates wizards. The next thing they discuss, of course, is the Scepter. Which he has with him there. Um, and it's wrapped up in uh, like really thick leathers. Um, and he says, it's oddly, at times, when people will go to touch it, it will react in a way that they're afraid to, like, like not spark and such, but the flashing light thing that they saw before. And then sometimes it seems perfectly fine. No matter what spell they cast on it, they don't find anything magical. But they've also verified in no way is it some type of machine. There's no openings or links or anything to appear that there'd be some type of uh, gears or something inside. It doesn't appear to be a gnome-made device. It's much too smooth and sleek for that. Um, he goes, everything, and you say, he's honest with it. He goes, I'll be honest, it stumped me. Everything in my experience tells me this is a magical item. This is a magic item or artifact and probably powerful. He goes, and I can't, I can't find a single trace of magic in it until it starts reacting magically. And he goes, that kind of magic goes I've never seen before and concerns me because that means it's probably really, really powerful. If you wish... I will keep it here, and we can continue to research on it. 
Although at this point, unless I can find something new, I, I don't think there's much we're going to be able to learn about it. Uh, we'll continue to research, of course, but there's not really any other things I could do to it. He goes, and to be honest, um, not knowing its faculties, and my fear is maybe it somehow could be bad or negative to magic users, I'm not really comfortable having it in the tower. Kind of surprised Mercy. She's like, really? He's like, he goes, I don't know what it could do. For all I know, some apprentice casts the lowest level of spell and suddenly triggers this thing to blow up my tower. He goes, I can't, I can't take that chance. Not knowing what it is, I don't feel safe having it here. I can't contain something without even the tiniest hint of what it can do. Um, and Mercy's like, I have a place that I can keep it where it'll be away from people and there's not a lot of magic going on in the keep. So they're like, okay, that'll work. Um, Mercy had built, when the kingdom was built, when the, or the, the keep, if you will, which is basically a castle, she had a secret room built a uh, short distance from where her uh, personal quarters in, in a hallway. There's a secret door that you can open. There's a stairs inside that goes down into a decent-sized chamber underground. And in there is basically her vault. That's where she keeps things of wealth. That's where she keeps magic items and artifacts, things that she has. You know, like if she had a flying carpet, that's where she'd keep it on a daily basis, not just sitting in her bedroom, you know. There are thieves in this in the world. You just don't leave that stuff lying about. Uh, so anything, that's where a large amount of her, her money value and such and gems and things that she has uh, and, and payments that come this rainy. There's an actual vault vault too, but this is her special vault. It's her private vault. And she decides that's probably the best place to put it because only a very small handful of people even know the room exists. It was something she had made by the dwarves specifically that no one else in the group even knew was being made. Uh, so it's really only Ulrich and <clears throat> Quan and Seamus know about it, uh, as well as Artemis, uh, by association Draven, Dandy, Michael, and um, Darsh. They know it's there, although Darsh and Dandy have probably never been in it. They know it's there, but they probably wouldn't know exactly where to find it. They've spent some time at the keep, but not a ton. So she says, okay, I'll take it back with me and we'll keep it there. And, and he's like, and, you know, there may be times I want you to bring it back where if we've got a new idea, something we might be able to test it. And she's like, sure. He goes, you know, sometimes I could come to you where you keep it. And she's like, no, I'll bring it to you. Because <laughs> he doesn't, she doesn't say I have a hidden room. She goes, I have a place I can keep it, you know. He's like, fair enough. Okay, I get the point. Gotcha. And they thank him and they say, well, they're like, okay, excellent. And he goes, almost like they're ready to stand to say thank you for helping. And he's like, what if you would? There is a couple of other matters that I would like to discuss with you while I have you here, if I may. The ladies sit back down. They're like, okay, sure. What can we do for you? And he just, again, I mentioned, he's not a beat-around-the-bush kind of person. He's just sitting there, and he's looking at him, and he goes, Oramon. And <laughs> Artemis is like, ah. And Mercy's like, because they have reactions to those words. And he goes, I... Ormon is clearly a mutual threat. It's a threat to Serenity. It's a threat to the Brotherhood of Magic, which is what the he's part of, their tower's part of. This one and the one in <clears throat> uh, Paxawal, and one is being built in Thoramon uh, as well. Uh, Thoramon being the town where the guy was king was assassinated. They tried to assassinate the daughter, but Darsh saved her, and then the Darsh is now the new queen. Or the daughter's now the new queen. He says, we need to discuss Ormon and our places in, in fighting them. He says, uh, 
Ormond's army is huge. And should they wish to march, march on uh, Serenity with their entire force, which would be foolish because they leave the rest of their empire completely empty, uh, there's no hope of Serenity defeating that. Because I don't say this to be negative, I'm just stating it as a fact. He said, we also know that we as mages are viewed as threats. And that mages are something else that these worshippers of Pandora uh, do not seem to like or tolerate. Um, as such, we find ourselves in a very like predicament. Here we are, all members of this new growing kingdom of Serenity, and we all are targets from the same place. Um, he goes, I heard of your, you had a meeting with the ambassador and such. Um, he goes, I know enough about you, Mercy, to know that that probably didn't go well for him. And Mercy just kind of snickers and Artemis shakes her head. He goes, <clears throat> as you know, many mages have specialties. Um, Tobias, who's been here before? The cars met him. He goes, I, I'm no Tobias. Tobias, and much like Lady Lumia, their, their profession was the making and study of magic items and artifacts. He goes, if one of them were here, I'd probably have a much better shape. Better answers about your your artifact, but I don't have anyone quite that knowledgeable here at this tower about that. Um, we don't know where Tobias is. Gives a look to see if they want to answer. Like, hmm. it's like okay, and no one's heard from Lamia since she left her position uh, months and months ago. So <clears throat> we don't have anyone who quite has that type of knowledge here. But there are many different professions. Um, the creation of new people who focus on the creation of new spells, researching old spells, wards, things of that nature. Um, and again, he, he goes, and then there comes me. Some mages train to be battle mages, mages who train to fight. They're not out there with a sword or an axe or anything like that, but they fight side by side with those in combat. Um, young Tobias, for example, could have easily taken that path as often as he was out at, uh, running around the world with you and your friends, as an example. And they all have a little chuckle from that. He goes, <clears throat> but some for some people, that's their call. And so I would like to speak to you, Mercy, specifically, about an arrangement. Now I want you to tell you that the young lady who's about to, who plays Mercy had no idea this was coming. I threw it at her, uh, and she got to respond to it however she liked Battle mages, those who learn spells specifically used in combat and such, it's hard to get a lot of practice with that. Unless you're out fighting all the time, it's not a way to get experience. And being able to use those spells in a combat without hurting allies is a challenge all in itself. Here's what I'd like to recommend. I would like them to train with Serenity's military. Basically, he, what he wants to do is he wants to arrange to have young mages, battle mages specifically, but maybe even some of the mages, train with Serenity's warriors for a term of one year as an apprentice. During that time, they will not be paid. Mercy doesn't pay them. They're, all their needs and such are taken care of by, the, by the, the tower, by the Brotherhood of Magic. Then when that ends, and they graduate from apprentice to a full mage, they will spend one full year with Serenity as part of the actual, excuse me, actual active service, in which point there would be a wage paid. We can work out how much from each or who or such, but at that point, um, 
they would receive a wage equal to the service, and you know, we'll work on that. At the end of that one year, the mage can choose to stay on or can choose to leave the service and go do whatever they like. At the same time, Mercy has the ability to nix any specific person she doesn't feel capable. She's like, this person not going to work with my people. You know, He's been with us two months. Everybody hates him. He's only causing problems. This guy's not going to work out. You have the ability to void anyone that's offered. Well, not put anyone in your service that you don't want to be there. Um, but this will put not only training for mages to learn to fight with others, they'll specifically learn to fight with Serenity's military. And if properly compensated, might inspire them to stay along for that, giving us a military that blends combat warriors and such with magic users, something that there really doesn't exist in the southern kingdoms. Even in Paxawal, where we had tried to do something like this previously, <clears throat> Paxawal's army and navy will have mages, sure, in there, but they, the army and navy has their own way of acting, their own way of thinking. They've been around for centuries at this point. But the military here is new. And a lot of the people that are coming into your ranks are people from different worlds who's bringing all their own, new, their, their own experiences in, and you're making the best out of that. If we can get this off the ground early and train these people to work together as allies, I think that it would be, benefit everybody involved. Um, because we've talked about it with other kingdoms. In the few, we've done pilot tests and it didn't work, and some were just completely against it. But um, this is something we've wanted to talk about for a while, even before the tower was here. One reason we want a tower here, because we think that you're forward-thinking enough, Mercy, that this would be something you could see the benefit of. <clears throat> and uh, Mercy does. Uh, she likes the idea. She's like, I am completely for that. Because, again, Mercy knows that she's drastically outnumbered by Oromon. But even in the last battle, they would have lost had it not been for the late minutes uh, arrival of several powerful mages, including Lamia. Uh, magic is what leveled that field. To have mages trained and within the ranks of, of her soldiers, that could become invaluable. And she's like, yes, this is definitely something I'm interested in. He's like, excellent. We, have, we can start talking about this, working some things out, how the, how the best it'll work. I mean, we want them living with the soldiers just like you know they're going through their training. We will have to work out how their training can work. We'll need your trainers to work with some of our battle mages so we can work out how these type of things, strategies can work. And for that, um, she's like, I know just the knight to put in charge of that. Because Devin is her, is her strategy guy. She goes, I'm, I'll definitely partner you with uh, Devin. Um, and I think that you and Devin would have a lot of experience here. And he's like, okay, I think that's great. <clears throat> um, arriving at that agreement, he then turns to Artemis. And my lady, I have two things I'd like to speak to you about as well. And she's like, okay. He goes, while some have done so, there has been some hesitancy to, in, in, uh, of my... That's what I'm looking for. Of my... Not, not group, clan, of my... Uh, organization. We'll go with organization. Um, I would like to ask on behalf of the tower for the mages to have permission to attend services and to worship at the temple. Uh, the god of magic is sacred to us. Uh, like gods are sacred to most clerics. Again, there are no clerics of the god of mages. Technically, all mages are gods of magic clerics. <clears throat> That's just kind of how that works. Um, and some have 
expressed interest in doing so, but were unsure of whether or not that they could feel welcome or if that'd be something that would be acceptable. And Artemis is like, oh, of course, yes, anytime. Anytime anyone wants to go there, welcome, like any other uh, citizen of, of Serenity, and they're citizens of Serenity. Any one of them is welcome to come and attend. And uh, he's like, excellent. And he's like, I'm very glad to hear that. Um, I myself, something I'm interested in. And he goes, and I assure you that um, your so willingness to, to allow the thing, it, it means a lot to us. Um, and I can assure you that the Brotherhood of Magic will make, you can expect, large contributions <laughs> from our organization as well. Artemis blows that off like, ah, it's okay. In back of her head, she's like, yes. <laughs> more money? Because the more money she gets in, the more stuff she can do to help people. She's not a rolling around on cash kind of person. <clears throat> Even though the vault in the, um, <clears throat> in the temple is probably better than Mercy's vault. Uh, because a lot of money gets donated that way. <clears throat> and then he gets really serious from it. And his demeanor immediately changes. <clears throat> and both of them start to feel a little uncomfortable because he's kind of sitting there and he's just staring at Artemis for a moment. Eyes slightly winced and they know <clears throat> it's like he's waiting for something. He's like, there is one other matter that I feel I need to discuss with you. Artemis is like, okay. He goes, it's important for me as the head of this tower and the leading emissary of the Brotherhood of Magic in these lands to be aware of any and all potential threats, dangers, um, or potential situations that might affect us in some way or another. <clears throat> Artemis and Mercy look at each other like, okay, it's understandable. Mercy and like, Mercy like, I'm the same way, I get that. <clears throat> so he goes, it's important to me that I, I get information. And so I have, one of my jobs is gathering information about the area and such. They're like, okay, we get that. He goes, so I am aware of your, he's like, <clears throat> like he's searching for it, he goes, beloved. And that immediately Artemis is like, oh no, because she's, <laughs> he goes, and a being uh, of his type doesn't really exist anywhere else that we know of and has quite a bit of power at his disposal. And the fact that you've that you accept him and, and you know his his position in your life <clears throat> speaks a millionfold towards his character and the fact that he's not viewed as any type of danger. That said, I would be remiss in my position and duties if I did not at least try to find out and get knowledge and with your permission and with his permission, um, I would like to meet him. I ask for nothing else but the chance to meet him, speak to him, and you know, kind of get a feel for him myself. Artemis is like, I'll ask. Because Artemis doesn't rule him, doesn't tell him what he can and cannot do. Um, and she knows that Draven's nervous, not really nervous, but concerned. He doesn't want people to be afraid of him. He stays kind of out of the way <clears throat> here, you know what I mean? A lot. Most people know who he is and how that he exists. I mean, she has a son. <laughs> like everybody kind of knows he's a part of the life, but you know, no one quite knows exactly who he is, what he does, or what he's capable of, except for our, our heroes and uh, their close close NPC friends. And she's like, I will uh, definitely speak to him uh, and, and get his thoughts on. Him. He goes, that's all that I ask, and I appreciate that. Um, 
And he said, so at this point, the meeting ends, and he does, you know, say that he'll definitely research um, the scepter. But right now, his more pressing concern is the dreams. Uh, and he goes, I have a path that I think uh, that we're going to research here. He goes, I can't say it's going to come through, because I have a path. Thinking back in my memory, I came across something while doing researching this many years ago. And if I retrace that path, I may come across something about what you're in. So he goes, I will do my best to find something out as soon as I possibly can, which they appreciate. <clears throat> and they go back home. To their individual homes, because they got stuff to do. Artemis wants to check on Kelvin, make sure he's doing okay. Check on the temple, check her kid. See if Draven's back yet. Remember, he's been gone for a while. He said he would be. Because uh, now she's got to tell him about this, but she's also got to find out, you know, tell him about all the other bad stuff that's been going on. With spells in wells and undead things and lucky nuts. Like, she's got a lot of stuff he's not going to be happy to hear, and she knows that. Like, he's not going to be mad about it, but she's, he's sure as hell not going to be happy. She's got her job to do, and she can carry herself. You know. um, and then Mercy needs to get back, because, and, and, and now she needs to gather with the knights that are there. Because now Seamus and Quan are back. The only one who's not there is Seth, who's still at the border. Everyone else is there, and she needs to talk, go into detail about what's been going on, potential threat from the dream things, and what needs to be done. <clears throat> so the rest of that day is them meet, her meeting with her knights and such, and Artemis kind of being at home, taking a day to rest before she gets right back into her duties. Miyasha is already back in the work, and Kelvin's already up and around, although a little bit slower. Uh, he's got some tomatoes he's growing. He was very concerned. He was already gone for a couple of weeks, and he's very worried about the fate of his tomatoes. The, the previous uh, excitement in his life almost forgotten with the dire threat of aphids. So, <laughs> that's one of his things. <clears throat> that same day, <clears throat> Dandy and Michael are in Paxiwal. And they have two, they have a couple places on their list they want to go. Number one, they're going to go check with Weber. Weber is the, if you'll remember, older dwarf gentleman who's kind of the hookup for hunters in this area. Uh, hunters of the undead and supernatural, if you will. Weber is the guy who uh, who you go to get materials, holy water, potions. It's also uh, a great source of information on the occult. Not only is he knowledgeable, but since all the hunters come through there, it's easy for mes messages and information to get passed from one to the other. Because uh, while there's no real organization for hunters, um, many of them know of each other and um, at times will band together to take on undead threats. There's times where Dandy and Michael have teamed up with others. Um, and because of their success, Dandy and Michael are a little bit um, even more so well-known um, and have been sought out by others who have discovered maybe they're in a little in over their heads or there's a threat that needs multiple people. So they go speak with Weber first. <clears throat> they haven't seen him in a while and they're worried about him. They go in as normal. First thing they do, wash their hands. Then they come in the door and they chat. Weber's happy to see them. Um, he said he'd heard the, you know, talking, he heard the rumors about the uh, Thief Guild War thing going on, but none of it really spilled over to him or any of the hunter stuff. <clears throat> Although sometimes there are thieves and assassins who are also hunters, but none of that's really spilled over into his world at this point. And he's not had any trouble. Um, they, they managed to pick up a few new items, um, some more wooden stakes, silver bullets, you know, that kind of stuff. Find, finding out that there was some negative uh, were creature or lycanthropes in the area 
Hush. Hold on a minute. Hey! Stop that. Cats are fighting. <laughs> Sorry about that. Cats are fighting and I may have to go walk one upstairs if they don't stop. Um, but lycanthropes, while not normally something they deal with, sometimes overflows into their area. So that's information that he's he didn't know about that he'll definitely, especially with one still escaped, that's something he'll pass the word around. Um, but overall, he doesn't get he, when when discussing the dreams and such and all that. He's got nothing. I've never heard of anything like that. Never heard of an undead that could do anything like that. And that's really where his specialty is. He goes, I don't. He goes, I don't think you're dealing with an undead creature at this point. Uh, I guess I can't say for sure, but he goes, I I don't know any undead that would care enough to go into your dreams. <laughs> you know, it's not really their forte. And they're like, yeah, we kind of thought that too, but we thought, you know, it doesn't hurt to ask. <clears throat> so they spend a little time with him, reminiscing, catching up, talking about what's happened in the meantime, hearing local news and such as well. They finally bid him a farewell, and they make their way to the temple, where they uh, are escorted to meet Sister Mara, who's the head of the clerics of healing in Paxwell. Most people just walking in saying, hey, I want to talk to the head cleric, don't get that way, but Dandy and Michael are on the short list. Um, Dandy and the other heroes have helped save the world several times now and have been uh, also helped save Mara's life as well. So they kind of get a golden ticket to go in there whenever they need. And she's, her and Michael spend some time talking about the adventure, the were-creatures as well which she says she'll definitely make sure that the ruling council of, this, of the of Paxwell is aware that was going on in that town and maybe send some people over there to help make sure those people are a bit, not like take them over like evil, but send some additional guards there and such in case that other one comes back and tries to cause problems. Um, they also hear all about the dream stuff. And she, again, she's like, I don't know anything. I've never heard of any magical spell, uh, any type of granted power a cleric would have that would allow them to do what you're talking about. That's pretty powerful stuff. If there is, in fact, someone out there who's doing this to you, which, I mean, can't even verify that technically at this point, um, it would be a very powerful magic. She goes, nothing I've ever heard of. I'll, you know, we'll look into it, of course. If I come up with anything, we'll let you know. She goes, but I've never heard of anything like that. And again, they're like, okay, we never hurts to ask. We kind of thought that that's why we're going to door number three. And that's when they head to the, to the wizard's tower. Um, again, known as they are, uh, not quite the golden ticket, but uh, they still have to wait a little while in a room, but they get taken into a room and eventually um, someone comes down to speak to them as well. And where is that? Surprisingly, it's actually the, the head of the tower, a, uh, a uh, cleric in white robes with silver trimming uh, named Marissa, who has been the head of this tower since this whole thing started. Uh, they worked with Lamia the most because she was one of the three heads, but uh, Marissa is actually the boss of this place, or one of the boss of this place. Um, and she, with, with like Lamia was. And she hears the story, and she's like hearing about it and going over the thing, and she's taking notes and such. And she's like, okay, um, again, I don't know anything of that nature off the top of my head, but I could see a, a magical spell or some type of magic item might do that. I will also look into that for you. It may take a few days. And she's like, that's okay. Everybody's looking into it for us. And it's all going to take a few days. She goes, so we're going to be hanging out at so-and-so inn. Um, 
but we're gonna we plan on being here for at least a couple of days before we head out. It's like, okay, we'll do our best to get something back to you. They then go and to their last stop of the day, the docks. Because sure enough, who happens to be sitting there? The Miss Dandelion, her ship. It's supposed to be. Sorry, thirsty. Word of it's in head. And Lyman was there. He'd been there actually for a while now. Um, she'd left word when they came through Paxwell the first time that should someone um, come through, or that ship come through, leave a message, let them know that we're coming back by and to wait on us. <clears throat> Lyman is there with the crew. She doesn't know most of the crew. The crew swaps out quite often. Lyman's the only regular. Uh, but Lyman is basically her first mate. He's really the captain of the ship. He refers to her as captain when she's there, but he's really the one that runs the ship. He's the one that keeps the crew running and such. Uh, Dandy's overwhelmingly large amount of money keeps them more than financed to do what they need to do. Um, and they will very often help escort hunters and things from one city to the next. and Go by Darshtopia and check on that and such. Uh, but sure enough, Lyman's there and she says, hey, we're giving these guys two days, uh, but after that I want to go to Kronayar. And he's like, really? That's one port we never really go to. And she's like, yeah, I got it. I think that, you know, Mercy and Artemis have each other. I think it's best we get to Darsh. I think we should find Darsh. I think he might need my protection. <laughs> Lyman's like, okay. I will have us ready to sail in two days. She's like, excellent. I'll be staying at this inn. Send me a message if you need anything. So Danny and Michael are going to spend a couple days just hanging around Paxiwal doing what little research they can access themselves, reach into some other contacts, see what they can find out, while they wait for Lyman to ready the boat. We're skipping over Darsh a little bit. So some of the stuff that we're, we're going ahead a couple of these guys, we haven't Darsh yet. Once we get to Darsh, we're going to be on Darsh for a little while. That's why. But the next part's a little more important. That evening of that first night, <clears throat> after eating a meal, pretty much by herself, all of her knights and such are out running around and checking on things and getting stuff ready. And you know, now they're wanting to move more soldiers to the front. Um, they want a little bit more defenses here because of because of the new Ormond threat. The ambassador showing up at their gate. They're taking that as a threat, even though he really didn't do anything. So they're going to increase security. Plus, they're already going to start working on this mage proposal. <clears throat> so Devin and uh, Seamus are really looking into that. So Artemis finds that she's eating mostly alone, uh, except for Flynn. Remember Flynn's her uh, teenage uh, 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 squire? That's the word I'm looking for. Who also sees herself like an assistant more often than not. But uh, he's there kind of hanging out. Make sure she's got what he needs. And she invites him to eat, too. And that happens a lot. Like, he's always welcome at the table. It's not like he has to stand there while everybody else eats. Um, he'll make sure, you know, everything's being taken care of. And then he pulls up a sit and she serves herself. She doesn't have to bring him food and such. Um, sometimes the other way around. Here, have some wine. He's like, I'm 14. She's like, you're right. Have some wine. Learn to drink. You're going to be a knight, son. Learn to drink. You know? He's like, oh. Uh, first of all, if you're living in a country where you can't drink under age 18, don't do that. <laughs> Or 21, whatever it is. Follow the law. Dang it. But in fantasy worlds, it's different. It's magic. Magic makes alcohol burn faster. So, you know, it's different. Um, 
Her father, unfortunately, was not able to join her for dinner tonight because he is now having to fill the void that the traitor, he just found, came back to find out about it happened. Not only that, was one of his two sidekicks, one of his two main leaders here that was supposed to be helping them out in, in this new... Remember, they're going to Thorman to build a, a base, a fort there. So they have a presence on the Oromanian side of the uh, mountain range. So he's also doing that, and he's doing some st really strict questioning to make sure that there aren't anybody else in there. And um, Weston the Paladin had volunteered to assist in this matter. And uh, literally him, him and Weston are chilling there, and they're, they're talking to each person one by one, just to be on a safe side. So there's that. So... After the meal, like she normally does, as she's finishing up, um, you, you know, Flynn's gathering up some dishes. It's just the two. It's a big hall. It's a huge hall. There could be tons of people. It's just the two of them eating. And sometimes a chef, somebody brings in food, another servant or something. Um, but mostly it's just them, and they're talking about stuff and what's going on. She's telling him about the dreams and such and talking about night stuff and all that. Um, as they're gathering up dishes, he's like, oh, my goodness, I almost completely forgot. He's like, he doesn't check his watch. They don't have a watch. But he's like, he's like, I forgot after dinner, I was supposed to ask you uh, to go to the northwestern balcony. One of the balconies, like northwestern balcony, um, because there's something that it looks like they're with the mage tower that looks a little odd at night, and I've been asked to send you there. She's like, well, that's weird. Why didn't somebody tell me this? He goes, I'll be honest. I apologize, my lady. Completely slipped my mind. Uh, we would have told you before dinner. But supposedly it only happens after dark, so sending you earlier wouldn't have helped. And she's confused. She's like, Flynn, you're better than that. Next time, tell me ahead of time. I could have waited till dark and gone, but I'd like to know these things ahead of time. He apologized. I'm sorry. I just, with everything else going on, still no excuse. I apologize. He's like, it's all right, but just try not to let that happen again. So she gets up to this balcony. And she gets out there and she goes out and she's looking at the tower. And it's the sun, the sun's just about set at this point. She's watching to see what this is. And Flynn, the only information she gets is it doesn't know if it's something magical about the tower or something with it happening around the tower, but supportedly there's there's people have seen some things around the tower. And they're sitting there and she's just kind of sitting there watching, waiting for it to happen. They're just hanging out. But then a couple minutes later, the door behind her opens, and she looks, and out steps Ulrich, who he says he's come to give his report of what's going on. He says, yes, I talked to you about the mage. Devin's going with the mages. That's going well. I've already ordered several men to the front. So on and so forth. And, and I've got that kind of taken care of. And she's like, well, good. Excellent. Excellent. What is it with this tower thing? Oh, he goes, oh, you haven't heard about that. Yeah, supposedly some type of thing happens around the tower at night, and it's weird, and it looks cool. He goes, I haven't bothered to look at it. She's like, well, I've been standing here for like 20 minutes. Nothing's happening. It's dark out now. It's starting to get cold. What time is this supposed to happen? He's like, I'm not sure. And he tries to make, he's making a little, the tie goes, well, I'll wait with you. We'll see what happens. So they get to chat and they get to talk about other stuff, of course. This is the war, this, about the dreams. And, and he says, I have to be honest with you. Um, the, the dreams are, are concerning to me. The fact that something out there can literally pluck you out of consciousness into a sleep. 
and then attack you in your dreams, you, you've all survived. But what happens if you didn't in the dream, you know? We know that in the sands, if you die, you're dead forever. What about in the dream, you know? Uh, what, what, is, what, is, what is with that? Like, what, what, what would happen then? She's like, well, that's, you know, that's what we're trying to find out. He goes, it's affecting all of them, but I mean, all of you and your friends. He goes, but I'll be honest, you know, it, it troubles me more that it's you. I mean, you're the head of this country. You're also our responsibility to protect. And she's like, I told you, you're supposed to protect serenity. You're not just protecting me. And he's like, well, I have to speak plainly if I could. And she's like, yeah, of course, go ahead. He's like, my lady, I, I, you know how I feel about you. Or my feelings are. Now, Mercy, you remember, is not comfortable in these situations. And so she's found the easiest way to get comfortable is to embarrass him. She goes, oh, I remember. You were quite vocal about it this afternoon. <laughs> and he's like, not where I was going with that. But, yes. <laughs> I fear for you. You know that, you know, how much you mean to me. And I'm, I worry about you being gone, being taken in this manner, and there not being anything we can do to stop it. And especially since I don't get to be there to help. Hey, Kenneth. Because I don't, I, I, this isn't something that I, right now, have the ability to protect you from. Um, he goes, but the things here in this world, Oramon, the threats of them, the elites, all the magical stuff that comes your way, dark elves, everything else that we've run into, those are things I can help you with. And she's like, yeah, you're, you, you're important to me too. You, you. Without you, none of this would work. He goes, he goes, you, oh, hello, Colonel. <laughs> oh, amazing pops in. Hello, Colonel. <laughs> Everybody popping in. He goes, well, um, um, well, do it! Mercy's like, what the hell was that? He kind of puts his hands like this and he reaches into his pocket and he pulls out something that glimmers in the candlelight. Because there's some torches. Torchlight, I should say. Torches, not candle. And she looks at it, and as soon as she sees it, her mind immediately goes to, I like stairs. And the young man kneels down in front of her. And holding the ring in his hand, says, and while I may not be able to follow you in this battle, I swear to be by your side and protect you in this world and the next. Would you marry me? It was actually a little bit better than that when I originally wrote it, but I couldn't find the note. But basically, that's what happened on the balcony. And she stops him and she thinks about it, and she can't decide whether she wants to kiss him or hit him. That's what she told me, the young lady playing it. Because I'm torn between kissing him and hitting him. I'm like, oh, I hadn't expected that. Okay, well, which one are you going to go? It goes, either way, I'm going to say yes, but I still haven't decided if I want to kiss him or hit him. But she says yes, and he stands up and he puts the ring on her finger, which works, it fits, magic. Uh, and she has a smile, he has a smile, and then all the, 
giggling and clapping happens. And she turns back towards the door and Artemis's head is sticking out. Uh, Flynn's head is sticking out. Uh, a whole bunch of all the little goobers are going to be there. All the little people that would like that. Her father is sitting there watching because Ulrich had asked him for permission first. That's why he excused himself tonight. He and Weston had been done for hours. And <laughs> Artemis is standing there holding in her hand a glowing glass ball. And two other friends of hers from very, very far away were watching as well. In fact, it was a young Kender that yelled, Do it! <laughs> but the... Uh, it's at this moment that, you know, they all come in and applaud. There's clapping and congratulations and such. Um, as Mercy and Ulrich are now to be wed. Now, I'm sure you understand, that's not going to happen tomorrow. As much as they'd like it to be a small affair, they know it can't be. Right? It just can't be. It's going to have to be a big affair. She's the leader of this kingdom. And it's... She has to do it not for her. She's going to have to do it for the people, right? Like, she, they're going to want to see something like that. And she's already dreading that, but she also kind of likes the idea of the whole package. But it's one of those things that she was thrown about. And yes, there was a lot of time over the next while where the two young ladies um, actually got to plan the wedding and what they wanted and such. Um, that, I don't remember a lot of the details. That was stuff they all worked out more for themselves. I just came in afterward and said, okay, all the stuff you wanted is done. Now we'll work into the, the actual ceremony kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, there was that. It's not going to happen right away. It's not even going to happen in the next few weeks. It's, it may, it probably, it's not going to happen this episode <laughs> of the, the Merge World thing. But it's now it's set in the works. And that's one of those things I said that uh, doesn't really change the story here, but it's important for later. So, um, there's that. Darsh and Dandy got to watch. Artemis blinked him in on the ball and let them know about it. Um, so, and that's the end of that first night, right? That's the first night after they've been back from uh, the dream. Six more days. Now that we've done that, we're going to talk about Darsh for a little while. Because for everybody else, the next six days are pretty much hanging out, trying to figure out what's going on. There is one thing that will happen. We'll pause it for a moment and, and speak of it uh, in, when that happens. But right now, most of it for the next little bit is going to be a Darsh week. It is the next day that the Chimera... Zipping through the water. Darsh hanging out in his quarters, talking with Gadget, the navigator, trying to figure out what's going on, where else they need to go. When there are shouts from on deck of a ship sighted, Darsh quickly runs to the deck. It's not that far. It's a door and then he's there. And sure enough, one of these pirate-type ships they believe has been sighted. It's in the distance, but as soon as the sight of them came in view, the other ship appeared to turn and try to race away. And race north. No, sorry, south. Why that's important is because the south is the great wide ocean. There's nothing there. It would take months and months to try to cross the Central Sea. 
Um, so, not a lot out there. Not the direction you'd normally think to run. The ship originally had been heading towards the direction of Darstopia, but um, as soon as these guys were here, they said, Gadget? Oh, Gadget gets confused a lot. Um, <laughs> I mean, navigation-wise, he's, 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 he's pretty smart. Uh, uh, no. So, the ship takes off in full force. Now, this ship has quite a head start on them. But everyone is reaching into battle stations and preparing themselves. The Chimera has almost twice the crew the Morgenstern does. It's a very large ship. Um, and not only that, it has an interesting feature about it. And while they're definitely faster than that other ship, it's still staying, it's still quite a distance away. And Gatchet's like, can we use it? Darsh is like, I mean, I, we really have... I, come on, this is the perfect time. Can we use it? Standing next to Gadget is Garrig, uh, who's their cleric, and their sea mage, whose name I seem to have forgotten. I haven't tried to find that today. But Darsh has a sea mage that lives on the ship as well. All, all, all of his ships have a sea mage, or a smage, as we like to call them. Um, a mage specifically trained to live on water and oceans. That's what they're... They, to live on boats and such. And... Uh, Darsh is like, looks at Dorm sitting there, and Darsh nods, and Dorm goes, All right, go ahead, Danny. Starts yelling, Release the Phoenix! And that's what they named it. I didn't name this. They released it in the Phoenix. So basically, at the front of the ship is a large. For those of you who aren't familiar with these, I'm going to describe it basically. It's like a giant crossbow attached to the desk. It shoots, it's a ballista, it shoots giant spear like arrows. Um, but there's a very special arrow that sits at the front of the ship tied down with a very heavy chain linking it to the front of the ship. <clears throat> this is a something that the Sea Mage and Gadget had designed with uh, the young lady who plays Darsh, her idea as well. But basically in this situation, they load this special arrow and they fire it up in front of them. They're not aiming for the ship, it's way too far away. But firing it up, when the rope reaches the end of the rope, not the chain, the rope that's attaching it reaches the end of the rope, a big thing of cloth pops out of it. And basically it pops out like a big cape, or not cape, kite. And the ballista arrow falls off. It's heavy, it's wasted. But the kite thing that's shot up there attached to it, when the rope reaches the end, is what basically unties it, causes it to pop out and lands. And now there's this great big kite in the air of the ship, which normally, I mean... If you know anything about a kite, that's not going to do much. The kite's just going to fall, right? You can't just throw a kite up and it works. It's not kite physics. Now, let's just say that you have a sea mage on your ship whose one of the most important spells is to cause incredibly strong winds at your sails to help you go faster. Um... The way they work this out is that Garrig, who also has some clerical spells, basically is casting like almost like a healing type spell on the mage who's overly draining himself more than he should be casting the 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 wind spells. And he's casting it you know in a way that would normally cause a mage to pass out. 
but he's blasting that out there, and the wind hits, it's hitting all the sails, including the one up front, and the ship just kind of surges forward, which it would even with the regular sails. This is not a little kite. This is a big old kite. Basically, the overdrive with wind spells. Basically, yes, that's the concept. I didn't come up with it, but I thought it was a funny idea. And I don't know if scientifically it worked, but we're in a world with magic and dragons, so I, I said it was fine. So, <laughs> it doesn't really get used very often. This is really one of the only times that it got to really be used, but uh, it was important that we, we, we got to use it once because she designed it. So, sure enough, it pops out there. The Sea Mage, who is basically being held up by Garrig <laughs> and um, Rokar, because he's casting a spell and they're just kind of holding him because he's, he's being drained and, and Garrig is trying to help keep him conscious with healing spells and such. Um, but it blasts the ship forward. The ship just lurches and several... No, it's the first time they've ever got to use it in practice. Worst case scenario, it didn't work. They detach the chain on their end. It sinks. There's no big problem. Uh, but sure enough, the ship just jerks. And there's almost the sound of creaking from the sails. It almost the fear was that a sail might break. But the ship just jerks forward and half the crew hits their lands on their butt. But the ship does surge forward and it enables the ship to catch up very, very quickly. Not all the way, but it, it drastically closes space. Now, of course, the Sea Mage can't maintain this for long and eventually has to let it go. And when he does, the wind spell itself doesn't immediately drop. But when it comes to the kite, they literally, like, there's, like, very strong minotaurs that have to pull this huge ring in a latch, which unlooses the chain to the kite, so the kite can literally fall into the water. It's it's a one-use thing. They have, to, they have to rebuild it. But the last thing you want is a heavy chain tied to a big thing, sinking, pulling you down underwater. So this thing can now flitter off or fall and hit the water, hopefully not the ship. Um, but some of that kind of stuff. It was a fun thing. They really wanted to use it. So they're zooming through the sea, and it's daytime, relatively visible. When suddenly, about that time, the ship disappears. Like, gone. And everyone's kind of shocked. Even the sea mage, who's barely conscious, says he knows of no spell that could teleport a ship. There's no fog or clouds. It's like something's hiding it. Their ship continues towards that area. It takes still a little bit to get there. It was still in the distance. When all of a sudden, Nathalian yells from the bird's nest, all stop, like loudly and in a hurry. Most crewmen don't have the authority to do that, but Nathalian yells, all stop. Dorham just immediately is like, all stop. Dark's like, all stop. Nathalian is their lookout. Very, very good eyes. Anchors are dropped. This is not easy when you've just had a big gust of wind. Sea Mage is now going to use the last little bit of his strength to try to negate what last little bit of remaining spell is there. Gadget's still excited that it worked. He's like, it worked, it worked. He's jumping up and down. Um, but the ship literally comes to a stop. Not immediately. There's no brakes. Um, but they manage to literally go people, minotaurs in the bottom, throw out oars and are trying to opposite. It's a whole thing. 
Nathalian comes down from the nest. Kandarsh is looking in the water. He doesn't see anything. There's no rocks. Nothing that would imply that there's a reef. Something like that. Those are the things you'd worry about. Even in deep water, sometimes that stuff can happen. You know, a shallow part, an uh, underwater island, something like that. But Nathalian has very good eyes. And he's an overwhelmingly trusted member of the crew. What being a member of the elven royal family of Santrial. He, uh, they stop, and, and Darsh is like, what? I, what are we looking at? And Nathan goes, nothing. That's the whole problem. He's like, Darsh's like, I don't understand. He goes, look at the water. And Darsh stares at it for a couple minutes. They all are, and then it finally hits Darsh. The water's not moving. At one point ahead of them, the water literally is sitting completely still. Almost like a painting. But, but lifelike, like overwhelmingly lifelike. It's not a painting. This isn't an Acme thing from Looney Tunes. It's no painting here. But literally, it's like they're looking at a stopped piece of time in front of them. And Darcy's is like, well then, that's different. They look at it for a bit. Sea Mage is too weak to cast any spells right now. He's quaffing some healing potions and such that he has to try to reinvigorate himself to be on the safe side. It's going to take him a little bit to get back up. At least 15-20 minutes. Garrig tries casting a detect magic spell. And when he does, in front of them, the air kind of has like a sheen. Almost like you'd picture a curtain in the wind. You know what I mean? And then it stops. Um, Darsh, D-A-R-S-H. Darsh. Mm -hmm. Darsh has some of the best one-liners in the whole. There's, there's a one-liner that I read today I forgot existed. I, I laughed for like two or three minutes. I forgot that I'd written that. Darsh has some of my favorite one-liners in the show. Or the story. Yeah, Darsh. Mm -hmm. And, uh, What is it? Like, I don't know. Darsh says, Rokar. Rokar steps up. She's the second mate. He goes, little rowboat. Go find out what that is. It's his cousin. He's like, aye, Captain. He goes over and to turn up a group of humans and minotaurs lower a boat. And they climb down and they start rowing forward. It's not like they're being sacrificed. It's a sign of trust. We trust you to go in there and figure out what this is. So they're going in slowly, and rowcars. These are big rowboats, not a little rowboat. It's a big boat. Obviously, it's a bunch of minotaurs in it, right? Thank you, Wolf, for the sub. I appreciate that. So, rowcar, as as they're going in very slowly, has a long oar in front of him. He's going to poke it because. That's never ended badly for these people. Sure enough, he reaches out with the long oar. And Darsh and them are watching to see what happens at the front of the ship. And as he does, the end of the oar disappears. Quickly pulls it back. 
and the ore is whole again. Does it again? Same thing happens. He looks up at Darsh and he kind of waves, like, we're going in. Darsh is like, you know, because they're a little ahead of the boat. They're not like right next to each other. And the boat moves forward and it disappears as well. A little rowboat. It's only a minute, minute and a half before the rowboat appears again, coming back at them, rowing very quickly. Very quickly. Darsh immediately yells out, make sure the ladders drop so they can get them up out of there. Damn the rowboat. And I was worried about the rowboat right now. Darsh knows something bad's coming and he starts yelling out for battle stations and arm yourselves. And everybody's pretty much ready for that anyways. They're chasing a pirate ship. But now they're prepping for sure. Rokar and the other immediately are rushing up the ladder to get up there. He says, there's a whole island in there and some ships and they've got crews. He goes, you didn't have any problem going through? He goes, now nah, some type of like either illusion or shield thing that's keeping it hidden. Darsh goes, it's all I need. Take us through. <laughs> and Dorm's like, really? He goes, I don't have time to play with this thing. Take it through. <laughs> He's like, okay. And I'm like, all right. Sure enough, they start, at this point, they're from an all stop. They're, they're paddling forward. There's guys down beneath doing that, moving through. And as they're pushing themselves through, Darsh stands right at the front of the boat. He wants to be at the front of this when it comes through. Oh. Hey, Omar, thank you very much. I appreciate you joining the membership program. That is awesome. We don't get a lot of people joining on the Merge Worlds night. So thank you very much. That is awesome. Now, if you're not a member of our Discord yet, go to my website, onlydraven.com. At the top, there's a button you can click on. That'll take you right in. And once you're in there, uh, if your name on Discord is different than it is here, shoot myself or one of the moderators a message, and we will get you bumped up to member status there as well. Uh, that would be awesome. Thank you so much for participating. I appreciate that. And I will save that spin for uh, tomorrow night because I don't drink during Merge Worlds. But thank you. Appreciate you participating. Supporting the channel that way. I really do. That's awesome. And puts us back up to 83, which is awesome. So, so they, uh, sure enough, as soon as Darsh, the end of the boat goes in, it's like they're just going through an invisible curtain. And sure enough, there's an island, if you can call it that. It almost looks like the tip of a mountain coming out. So it's smaller than any of Darsh's islands. But it's just like a big pointy thing that's coming up. And there is some type of keep built on the top and then down on the side. On one side appears to be a little bit of a flatter area. And you see several docks. There are three of the pirate type ships that they were following. Um, looking like they're all you know, prepping for combat. And what's more disconcerting, there is clearly a war barge being built here. A war barge is a huge ship. It actually would compete with the Chimera. It's not meant for speed. It's meant for, for battle and destruction. Um, and it's not done yet. You can see that. It's not going to be entering any problems. But should that get finished, it would be a real big problem for smaller ships in the water. Especially with a couple of these little ones around it as well. So, Darsh immediately, so he's like, okay, well, we found our problem. He goes, I see three ships. And that war barge, and regardless of what else is going to happen today, there's no way I'm going to let that war barge get finished being built. Isn't that right, Patches? 
Patches is uh, enjoying the story as well. Yay. She's been extra squishy today and cuddly. So they race forward to battle. Now the one ship that they were chasing has already turned around and another one appears to be leaving dock. The third one looks like it may be doing repairs. They don't seem to be really quickly trying to man that one as well. Um, and of course the war barge, like I said, is going nowhere. But Darsh and the crew of the Chimera are about to enter into combat. This is uh, not Darsh's first boat-to-boat -boat combat. It is his first boat-to-boat-to-boat -to -boat combat. Um, and more importantly to Darsh uh, is what's in that keep. What's on that island, right? Every snake's got a head. Darsh's job in this situation is to cut it off. Sinking the ships, awesome. Totally want to do that. But uh, just sinking the ships and leaving a bigger threat, not so much. So immediately they enter into ship combat. And the ship combat goes on for several rounds. We role-played that. I'll be on individual things that happens ago. Um, but ship-to-ship -ship combat. Uh, Darsh... Um, Himself is using different... Uh oh, give me a second. Hold on just a minute. I just, it looks like the stream just lagged. If anybody can still hear what I'm saying right now, please let me know. That's on YouTube's side. That's Everything else is working fine on my computer. But YouTube looks to have frozen. Hold on, Patches. I love you. I know there's a delay, so I'm giving it a moment. Darsh is talking. You can hear? And it did lag twice. So it's lagging in and out for me on that. So if something happens and it keeps lagging, let me know. That's on the YouTube side, because everything else on the computer is running fine. Um, okay. The uh, This is the one thing that does... I've never had the PC crash during Merge Worlds, because it's the least demanding thing I can do. It's just a camera. I mean, I'm asking a lot of the camera to have to look at me. But other than that, the uh, it's not you know stressful for the computer to run just these. So, but, so Darsh books it on. And combat's going on, and, and Darsh is right in the... Darsh isn't fooling around. He's right in the front lines. He's still one of the strongest Minotaur on the ship. He is the strongest Minotaur on the ship. So, when everyone's loading up Ballista and stuff... It's like, two Minotaurs, grab this ballista. Or Darsh grabs it. You know what I mean? Darsh will just grab it and throw it up there himself. And there's there's many a time where Darsh, of course, we know one of his weapons is javelins. He has a large supply of those on the boat. So he's got uh, he's got the javelins out, and he just starts chucking those at the other ship. Now, one thing they, do can, they can see is that it definitely appears that the crew of the other ship is um, all Minotaur. They don't see any... Anyone else other than Minotaur on the two ships that they're now fighting? Um, and very quickly, the first ship that comes up, the Chimera lets loose quickly. And the Chimera has yet to be battle-tested. And that means no one knows its capability, even then. And when the first barrage of stuff goes shooting off of this thing, that first ship takes just a huge wave of damage. Because at this point, the Sea Mage is back up. Um, and while he may not have a lot of magic juice himself, he's got some scrolls and other stuff, and he starts whipping some fireballs over there. Because, um, you know, that's a, any sea mage can shoot a fireball, because anything you fight in the water is made of wood. Or, or you know, is a dragon, but fireballs still bug them. So, oh, thank you, Colonel. I appreciate that. 
Um, so he, uh, that first ship takes a huge barrage of damage right off the bat, and it turns off quickly. The second ship also tries to break off, not knowing exactly what else is coming through. Darsh uses this opportunity to literally shoot straight through. He does not stop at the ships. He wants to get to that island. He knows that he needs to get some people on land. He trusts Dorum to take care of the ships. But he he wants to get on that island. He knows something in there is a problem and he wants to get to, taken care of. And there are a couple of little spells that come from the other ships as well. Um, they seem to be more... Less damaging, if you will. Uh, and they appear to be coming from Minotaur. There are not a lot of Minotaur mages out there. So the assumption is that it's some type of Minotaur cleric. Of what? We don't know. But Garrick's like, they're not one of mine. Because Garrick is a cleric of the god of, of, of war. Because um, he likes that stuff. Minotaur is big on the god of war. Sure enough, Darsh's ship comes right up to the dock. And doesn't even come to a full stop. As it's coming up the dock, it's already spinning around. Darsh and multiple members of his crew that he trusts, including young Jorn. Did Jorn come to this one? No, I apologize. Jorn does not come with him. Rokar comes with him. So he leaves um, Dorum and most of the named crew on the ship. But as they're coming around, literally, the, it just start, they just cut wires and the rowboats land and they start rowing out of the way of the Chimera. And two ships of about 20, him and 20 of his crew go booking it towards the docks. Now, as soon as they get to the docks, of course, they're having to climb up. There's automatically combat. There's people on the docks. They're chopping down on them. It's not easy to get up there. But the other arrows, because they got bow and arrow, other stuff coming from the Chimera has helped pushing some of them that back as they're coming, as they're passing around. Darsh and them are able to get, a Darsh is the first one up top. Darsh not playing around. Darsh is the first one up the ladder. And as the other Minotaur and humans come rushing into him, they're like, their thought is, I'm sure, hey, if we can, let's get this first one off, because they probably don't know him by name right off the top. What they don't expect is that Darsh has boots. You remember Darsh's boots. They can only be used every so often, but they give him a surge of speed, allowing him to charge in almost like a little mini flash. Yeah. Uh, a short distance. Unexpectedly, Darsh, who's over there, is now Darsh right here and still coming at full speed. And Darsh just literally barrels into people. Right? Barrels in. He's got his sword out and his shield. He's just crushing people and starts slashing and People start falling back, not knowing what's going on. And a lot of the humans are taking this opportunity to jump off the docks into the water. At first thought, you would think that humans just aren't as courageous as mentors. Mentors, they'd rather die than run away. Darsh doesn't. The young lady who plays Darsh asked me a very important question at this moment. And it was such a good question, I was so proud of her. She said, what are they wearing? So they have swords, and then they're wearing tattered pants and shirts. She goes, any armor? I'm like, no. Do they have any shields? No. She's like, these people are not here by choice. 
And at that point, Darsh yells out, and they start trying to not hurt the humans if they can help. Because clearly the humans are not here by choice. That doesn't mean that they're still not a threat. They're still charging in, being forced to fight. So Darsh does the only thing Darsh can do. He thwops them really good with the shield and knocks them off the dock. This won't kill you. Hopefully it won't knock you unconscious so you don't drown, but thunk. And he starts shield bashing people out of the way. Now, the rest of his crew's up there, and they've got crossbows, so they're firing it back out. Crossbows are coming at them, and Darsh and them have their shield up. But they're fighting through the combat. And Darsh does one of my favorite moves that Darsh does. It's, it's an ability we created called shielding. So there's two, different, there's two different abilities with shielding. It's a homebrew ability. But using your ability as a weapon, which anybody can do, but in a very special way, or the ability to throw your shield. Now, what your shield can do when thrown depends on what type of shield you have. You have a big tower body shield, I don't care how you, you throw it, it's not going to do anything. It may hit somebody and cause a little bit of damage. Uh, but Darsh, because of this specifically, um, carries a square shield. He does not have a rectangular one. And it's metal tipped. And he literally just takes it off and he just whips it. Now he doesn't his goal here is not to hit anybody, but they see him with the wind-up, and people start diving out of the way. Here's this big minotaur shield being whipped down the middle. He's no Captain America. It's not bouncing it around. He's not using a target. It's nothing like that. It's a wild melee toss. He still has a negative to do it, but he, gets, he does way more damage because he gets to put his strength in. So he whips that down, and people are running out of the way, and at that point, Darsh and his crew surge forward. And again... Knocking humans into the water, stabbing minotaurs, and then knocking them into the water. And they manage to surge up the docks onto land. At this point, there's less humans. Uh, there are a lot of humans they can see, but most of them appear to be chained to the barge. Probably were being forced to build it. Uh, there are very few humans just walking around all, you know, fancy dandy. It's mostly minotaurs. And that's when they get into combat, because then there are several minotaur clerics that attack. Darsh knows most of the gods worshipped. Well, he knows all the gods. He knows the ones that are primarily worshipped. But he also knows a cleric of Pandora when he sees one. Pandora, the goddess of lies and deceit, a thorn in his side since the early days of Merge World. And historically members of, do you remember the group? The Black Horn. The group that rose up with Ormon to try to take on and, and, and capture the original, uh, what do you call it, the regular, uh, uh, the emperor, the original emperor. Douchebags, basically, these guys are. Darsh sees them, and that's his new target. Because uh, he sees, you know, he's like, all these guys working with them, all these other mentors, also jerkbags. Obviously, they need to go, and his crew is helping him with that. But clerics of Pandora, there's no saving them. They've already given away everything about them that makes them a minotaur in his mind. There is no honor in serving someone who worships lives and deceit. That is not how a minotaur fights. It is not honorable combat. And by God, he's not going to stand for it. So Darsh, along with Rokar at his side, charges directly at three clerics he sees. And the clerics begin casting spells, and Darsh takes some damage Uh I, he, I do, do you stop to block any of the spells or try to defend it? It's like, no, I just run through them. 
I'm like, really? He's like, I'll take the damage. Darsh knows how strong he is. He knows how tough he is. Rokar has to be a little bit more careful. But Darsh, he he you know he feels the flame or electricity, whatever was cast at him at the time. And he feels it hurting, but he just barrels through. He takes the damage. Now, he runs the risk that if enough damage is done, it could knock him unconscious. That's a D&D rule that we play with. If whatever damage is dealt to you deals 51% or more of your total life points in a single hit, you're taking so much damage, the pain is so strong, you can pass out from shock. House rule, one of my house rules, it's how it works. For both good and bad guys. If you can deal 51%, more than half of that person's life points, in a single hit, not sword, sword, a single hit, that person literally has a chance of passing out. You still get a system shock roll, which is a second edition thing. I'm not sure how I'll do that in fifth now. But you, that's, that's a, a gamble. So... Darsh ran that risk. He did not take quite that much damage. His armor class is low. <laughs> so he uh, he comes right in and without a whole lot, he just comes in and just, because he's got his sword, he has no axe, or his shield's gone now, right? So he pulls out another sword, because he dual wields half the time anyways. So he's coming in there and he's just a Cuisinart at that point. Just slicing and a dicing. Rokar comes on and takes on another one of the clerics, and it doesn't take but a couple of hits to take them out. Well, thank you. I appreciate the comment. Yeah, it's a house rule that I came up with a very long time ago. Uh, I want Because it's like, oh, I took 90 points of damage. I punch you back. What? You have 91 points of damage. If I can do that much damage to your body, your one hit point from death, there should be, other than my, my number went down, there should be an actual physical reaction to that. Um, so that's because of that. Now, people with very high constitutions can sometimes still shrug that off. There are exceptions to every rule, but it exists as a house rule in my D&D. So, those three clerics very quickly dealt with by Darsh and Rokar, and by as soon as he's done, he turns around, he sees that most of the docks have been taken by his men. Now, his men are a mix of Minotaur and human. But these are, these are men uh, and women who have fought together for several years now, work together on ships and have a close friendship. And bringing in human strategies, working with Minotaur, uh, they definitely fight differently than a regular Minotaur crew would. Uh, that always helps him when fighting other Minotaur. Even people like the Blackhorn, who then they themselves are outside the normal Minotaur rules. Um, a bunch of Minotaurs come in to fight, thinking they're going to fight Minotaur style. Now they're getting two different things, different things coming at them. Uh, it, it can give you the edge. At the same time, if our heroes are going against a mixed group, I hold that as a negative against them as well. If it's something they've never seen before, you never know. Exceptions to every rule. I know, Patches. It's so exciting. <laughs> she just wants all the cuddles today. So, this point, they can see there's more people coming out. Darsh has a decision to make. Do I try to stay out here and try to take out more people? Or do I go in and try to find out what's going on inside this keep. Who's leading this show? He turns to Rokar. And he points at four other men. He goes, go with Rokar. And he goes, Rokar, free the humans. Rokar looks up at the barge and he sees on the... Because you know, there's scaffolding around it, right? And there's humans that are chained to it who can't flee or anything. Rokar looks at him and nods. And they, him and his four start fighting their way toward the barge. Darsh takes the rest inside. Two reasons. Number one, they don't deserve to be you know, slaves here. Number two, 
every person they free is potentially another person on their side. Hmm? Hi, we're here to set you free. Here's a sword. Help us fight you out of here. They're probably going to do that. So Darsh sends Rokar and a group, a group of people to go do that. Darsh and the rest go bumbling into this tower. So let me get to that part. Uh, Dark built on the beach. Master Mr. Sands. Slaves building the ship. Lots of warriors. Okay. There are a lot of humans. There's quite a few. And in fact, a lot of the people that were assumed, you know, there were some ships that may have been attacked by these pirates that no one knew those ships because they were sunk. You know what I mean? Saying, instead of the crew just being all left for dead, maybe they were capturing them. So there's that's the thing that now makes Starch wonder how many other ships were attacked I didn't know about. He doesn't see any minotaurs in chains because... Most Minotaurs would rather die. So, you know, they probably did. So, Darsh is inside. Darsh doesn't play around. He kicks in the front door. <laughs> it's just multiple doors. There's no, I'm just saying. For all intents and purposes, he just, he goes inside. And he's not an idiot. He doesn't run in blindly. But he doesn't waste time either. So, Darsh goes into this place and it's well lit. So, there's nothing we have to worry about the light. Um, it's, it's a daytime outside. Remember, it's not nighttime. Every time I describe this battle, people picture it at night. And I, that's one of those running things I ask people. And they're like, well, it's at night. I'm like, no, it's daytime. And they're like, oh, I just kind of felt like it would be happening at night. I'm like, no, it was during the daytime. So they go in and they start fighting their way up the castle. Because, you know, bad guys are at the top. Come on, man. That's how stories work. <laughs> I mean, I am, they're either in the basement or they're up top. Nobody lives in the middle. That's not how villains work. <laughs> So Darsh is like, I don't see stairs to the basement. That means the villain has to be up top. <laughs> so that's just how stories work. And Darsh and crew uh, start fighting their way up. And it's a slow go. You know what I mean? They're stairs. They're fighting their way upstairs and through rooms where they're fighting opposition each time. Um, Darsh loses several people to this. I mean, he doesn't get through this unscathed. Darsh himself has taken a, a bit of a beating at this point. Running through the magic spells did more than most of the combat. Darsh is very fast. Um, and by this point, his boots have charged up again. He could do another charge, but he's refraining. He's saving it in case he needs it more. Now, the fight goes on for a good 30 minutes or so. Fighting their way up this, this castle, this keep. And as they're working their way up, they find that the closer they get to the top, the more they're coming across additional Minotaur clerics in the ranks. In fact, by this point, Darsh has seen six or seven of them hit the ground. <laughs> A foot. <laughs> Darsh has told his people, you see the clerics, target the clerics. Always target the squishies. I don't care if you're a Minotaur. If you're the cleric, you're still slightly squishier. Except for gods of war. They, you might be less squishy because of that. Just saying. So, they're getting close to the top. And finally, after about, they come across the door that is barred from the inside. Darsh knows he's just basically looking out the windows and such that they've got to be near the top of this place by now. And he can hear sounds from inside. And he thinks he heard a female voice potentially in distress. This angers Darsh even more. 
Not because you know, women are weak. He just doesn't like anybody in distress. And so they begin to beat down the door. Even with Darcy's extreme strength, it takes a little bit of time. The wooden beam that's on the door doesn't break, but again, as was happened recently with Weston, the screws holding the metal brackets in, those start to come out of the wall. The walls are made out of like a stone or brick. They're not carved, they're built. And with water damage, those things historically don't last super long. That's just, that's a scientific fact. I've looked into that. So eventually the bolts start to slide out and they're able to force the door open. Darsh is first inside. Darsh is always first inside. If there's a trap in there or something really bad, Darsh wants to take the brunt of it and not his crew. Darsh is always first one in. Inside is a very, very large minotaur. His fur is almost like a brownish with a greenish tint, almost like a... Uh, like a, a warp, like a sea wood, a wood that's been floating in the water for a while. He's a big minotaur, and he has probably the biggest double-bladed battle axe Darsh has ever seen. This room's a good size, but you could tell it's a personal quarters. Big dude with a big axe. There is, in fact a female male minotaur. And it appears that she's chained on the floor. She's sitting on the floor at the end of what would be a bed with chains holding her to the, to the bed frame. Again. Darsh not that happy about that. Darsh walks in cautiously. Looking around the room for anyone else. He doesn't see anyone else here. There are no spots. There's no other doors that someone could... There's, there's like cabinets and such, but no minotaurs hiding in a cabinet. You know, he's not worried about that. There's no closets. They didn't have closets back then. There's a balcony behind them overlooking the whole docks and such. There's a table. On the table, Darcy's just Darcy glancing around. What do I see? First glance, what do I see? See, see maps... Not close enough to tell what they're of. They're sitting there, and there appear to be uh, like circles and things drawn on them. You saw the two people I mentioned. You see the open balcony. You see the person, the young female, uh, chained to the base of the bed. And then this really big, well-scarred, incredibly strong minotaur with a huge axe. Young lady playing Darsh says, Excellent. I know exactly what I'm going to do. I thought Darsh was going to use his boots in this moment. <clears throat> I thought that would be... But Darsh is like, Nah, I'm not going to do that. He walks in with his swords and prepares to fight him honorably. I can respect that. The Minotaur just snarls, laughing a little bit, and comes forward, and they enter into combat. Three rounds of combat is what happened in this fight. 
a round of combat is where Darsh takes a turn, the other mentor takes a turn, or vice versa, depending on who wins the role of initiative. Both of them are very strong. The other mentor is big, a little bigger than Darsh, but not by a whole lot. Darsh is big for a minotaur himself. But compared to most of the other mentors they fought, he's a big one. Although that axe shows that he's very strong, the fact that he can swing that around. In the first three rounds of combat, Darsh scored three really good hits on that Minotaur. And that Minotaur did not hit him once. I was quite descriptive in the fact that he lunged a little too far, swinging the the axe heavily. Darsh easily sidestepped it and then took his attack. At the end of the third round, Darsh immediately drew weapon and swung it at the head of the female at the end of the bed. Who dove out of the way. Hold on, the chains weren't holding her there at all. Two things Darsh knows. No respectable mentor female is going to let herself be taken captive that way and kept there. And number two, no minotaur this bad at combat is running a group like this. The female comes up, two knives in her hand, with a pretty vicious snarl of her own. No one else knew what was going on, was quite shocked. Uh, to answer your question, Komar, these Minotaur attacked his island and damaged his ship and killed some of his people. The home that he's building himself, he has his own set of islands, which we call Darstopia, uh, that he's building to be his own place, and they attacked it and hurt his people. Darsh takes that very personally. And they've been attacking ships in his waters, which he also does not tolerate. The big Minotaur comes in and attack again. Darsh has to sidestep that. Oh, that was a previous episode. Yeah, that was a few episodes ago. Um, that's why he's hunting them to begin with. Um, but Darsh sidesteps the big one. His more concern is the female. Because he knows now at this point she's clearly going to be the bigger threat. This big dude works for her. And sure enough, while he's dodging the big guy's attack, she begins casting a spell. Darsh uses both attacks and run, using one of his swords runs the big minotaur through. Right through his gut. And he's a big guy. Big Minotaur, that's probably not going to kill him. Slow him down a minute. But he runs the sword through. But she surprised me, she being the young lady who played Darts, by saying, I don't pull the sword out. I was like, okay. She goes, I use that hand to reach down and grab the throwing axe at my belt. I was like, okay. She used her attacks. She had three attacks per round. She snatches it. And as she's running this dude through, she grabs it, snatches it, and flings it at the female. Does not hit the female. But the female jumps the hell out of the way. That's throwing axe for a minotaur is still a, you know, it's a wood cutting axe for a regular human. 
interrupts her spell. She has to dive out of the way. The rest of her crew, the rest of his crew start to come on in and he waves them back because now he still has the one sword. The other Minotaur is still swinging at him. Darsh attacks the Minotaur with his good sword again, stabs him, grabs his other sword, ripping it out slightly sideways. And then just literally turns and starts walking towards the female. Now he uses his charge boots. He didn't go blade first. He went shoulder first. But his weight hitting her with the boost, uh, the wall behind her cracked with the force. And it knocks this the wind completely out of her. Nobody knows he's going to do that. I'm not going to say it didn't hurt Darsh either. Remember, he doesn't have control of that. When he kicks it off, he goes forward. If he trips, he falls. I mean, he's, again, that's the one downside of these boots. He can't go only half the distance. He gets the full push. It's like, say, turning the boost on on your car. It boosts. But he just shoulder slams her, and they both kind of hit the ground there. No, and that's what I mentioned a moment ago. When he when he swung at her, she dove away. She was holding on to the chains like she was chained, but she wasn't actually chained. He said, I'm kind of holding, laying across the wrist like she was. So she rolled out of the way and began casting a spell. She's actually the one in charge. The battle then continues on. The big minotaur is going very slow. Most of his stomach is starting to pour out of the hole that Darth left. But he's still, you know, big ugly brutes. They don't go down easy. Darsh has to defend himself as the axe is coming down. Darsh is kind of on his on his knees at this point for, for the girl. And uh, he's using the sword to block. And Darsh says, I want to punch him in the stomach. Like in the same area that I hurt him at. So he punches him in the stomach. And for a second attack, he just takes his fist and punches her in the head. <laughs> like he, he was like, he's on his knee. He blocks it. He's like, Pow. Pow. <laughs> and she's starting to get up and all of a sudden, whack, her head's against the wall again. Darsh is exceptionally strong for a Minotaur. Different magic items, things and such over the time have given him that exceptional strength. Um, but that punch makes the big guy fall backwards. Darsh is able to now get up on his feet, takes a couple steps, and just cuts his heads clean off. Darsh turns, sees the female somewhat dizzily coming to her feet, and her daggers are in her hand again. These daggers are look like they're, they're almost not even like a blade. It's almost like the like horns on the end, and they come out both sides, like horns off both ends. But they look sharp. She doesn't say anything, doesn't even curse or hiss. She just comes in. And Darsh and her start to fight. And she's pretty good. Like, it takes a couple of rounds of combat. Um, she's definitely doing better than the big guy was. But Darsh is being very careful to be on the defensive. He's not actually trying to hit her as much. He's trying to see what she's doing with those weapons. And sure enough, he can tell that she's trying to stab him with the whip. Not cut him, trying to stab him. These are worshippers of Pandora. They are not honorable fighters. So in the next attack, when she swings in, instead of attacking her body, he cuts her hand off. 
Darcy knows these people are assassins and use poison and stuff and assumes that there's something on the knife. I have to say, I was very proud of the young lady who plays Darcy in this fight. All the things she's learned about fighting these guys in the past, she was expecting it here and did a really good job of fighting against it. The female drops the other and grabs the stump of her hand. And she looks at him with a curse in her mouth. She obviously knows who he is. And she says, she goes, she goes, she goes, doesn't matter what you do, foe hammer. There's no way, and that's really all she gets before he just basically takes his sword and just shoves it down her throat. I was like, you didn't, you didn't want to ask her any questions? He's like, she's a mentor. She's not going to tell me anything. He's like, he goes, and I'm tired of hearing villains brag about I'm not going to, I'm not going to win in the end. He goes, I just, I just, and she's like, just right through, pulls it out. She falls to the ground dead. The battle's not over. Darshan is, there's nobody up here, but Darshan is, men make their way back down and help. Sure enough, Rokar and many of the freed humans and the rest of the crew have, uh, Taken the beach, if you will. Uh, there's a few little skirmishes going on still, but not much at all. Not one Minotaur left alive. Because as I mentioned, Minotaurs don't get taken. If they can help it. And to be honest, there was not a... Uh, not a lot of... Uh, what's the I'm looking for? Not a lot of giving a damn. We're not really here to ask questions. You've attacked our people. you threatened our people. You've attacked our allies. You've, you've pirated in our waters. Um, yeah, we're just, we're just going to kill you. And I told you, Darsh from the beginning, his, his, his goal was to squish these people. When, when the Emperor said, go get these people, Darsh was like, there was no illusion between the two men. Darsh is like, I'm going to go find them, and I'm going to kill them all. Darsh is not an evil man, but Darsh is not a tolerant man either. And he's definitely not a forgiving one. So by... The end of the entire battle. There are multiple humans still alive. Unfortunately, many of them died. They didn't have armor and such, but many of them went, like, honorably would rather die fighting. Sure enough, there were people taken from crew. There's probably about 30 or 40 of them still alive. I mean, there was probably 100 when they got there. Um, and some were forced to fight, and, and Darcy's crew had no choice. They had to. Of the two ships that had sailed, one was sunk. And it's very deep there. Even though the mountainy things come out of there, it's not shallow. One of the ships completely went other. The other one um, damaged a little bit, but uh, Dorum and his crew managed to take control of the ship. So they technically have a whole other ship now. The one that's tied up to the docks, not the barge, but the other ship, Darsh can see that was the one that must have been recently battling with the uh, Minotaur and human vessel near, near Darshtopia previously, as it has quite a bit of damage. He looks at it, and the cost it would take to fix it, it's not worth it. He immediately sets Rokar and everyone left alive to set to basically burn everything. Now, once the clerics were all gone and everybody was dead, the illusion around the island that was keeping it hidden, that faded and went away as well. That was, that was a spell being kept up by the clerics. Again, goddess of lies and deceit. They start burning. They burn the barge down. They light the whole thing up. Darsh and his men ransack the place. There's some treasure there. There's, you know, there's going to be stuff. These people were pirates. They find some treasure. They find, you know, some weapons that are decent. Darsh, 
goes up and takes all the notes and documents and maps and stuff. He gathers all those up himself. Um, finds a couple other minor magical items, if I remember correctly. Let's see. The female, whose name is Padia, by the way, he finds that in her notes. She turns out her name is, she was Padia and she was the Talon, was her rank, which means she was incredibly high ranked in the Blackhorn. Uh, not the top, but very close to it. And while this won't be the end of the Blackhorn, definitely going to set him back a little bit. This was not a cheap operation. We did get a Ring of Protection plus two. That's the only one I have listed here. That is a, The rest of them were uh, two rolls off of... There's a chart in the player's handbook. You can roll for loot. A lot of times like you get to roll twice to see what you get. But there's a Ring of Protection plus two he took. I think he gives it to Jorn, if I remember correctly. Because Jorn didn't have any magic items yet at this point. But one of the ships that fought them was sunk. The one that was damaged is sunk. And the barge is sunk. Burned. Just just torched up. And then they sink in the water. Next, you know what I mean? Um, the other ship uh, that they did manage to keep is good enough to sail. Uh, it'll be a little slow, but it didn't take it that much damage. The one they sunk is the one they hit right off the bat with the first big blast. It did a lot of damage to it. Um, but at this point, Rokar takes command of the new vessel, and he brings um, mostly uh, some of his some of Darth crew goes over there to help. But mostly, it's the surviving humans who are all sailors. They're like, hey. We're going to get you home. I'm keeping the boat. The boat has been claimed by Darsh as spoils of war. But he's going to get them home. He'll make sure they get back to where either he'll get them to Arduel. Um, he'll see that that happens. Arduel is the closest city to Darsh's islands. So after all this is done, and all the clerics are done, and they take they spend most of the day looting the place at that point before they you know set torch to everything they can't take, just in case somebody comes back later. Furniture, old towels, whatever's in there. If they can't take it, they destroy it. They they want to leave nothing left for anyone to come back to at this point. And now that they know it's here, it's something they're going to check on occasionally. This is a little bit further out than Darsh normally goes in this section of the water. It's Far more south. There's nothing past this. There's no reason to go this direction. Um, and there's probably other little islands out there like that they still hasn't found, you know. But the he doesn't know how long the illusion's been around there either. Uh, so the new ship they take is a Minotaur ship. Um, but the humans are capable of, of running it. They're still capable. And several Minotaurs, uh, from, uh, including Rokar, go over there to run to captain it. Uh, when those situations where a minotaur strength may be needed. Because these humans, not that they're, you know, weaklings, but they have been probably very poorly fed and overworked for a while. Um, while they may be excited to have their freedom, as of tomorrow, they're going to be exhausted. <laughs> so, you know, poor Darsh has plenty of food and supplies enough to get them back. Um, and he's going to take both ships back to Kronayar first, uh, is his goal. He's going to go back to Kronayar. Uh, and then he'll make arrangements to get the humans to one of the other human lands. Uh, any few who may not want to stay on, of course, because Darsh is always looking for a few good men to serve on his new ship, right? Uh, this ship that they take is smaller than the Morgenstern, which is his first ship, but it's definitely bigger than the Miss Dandelion. Uh, it's dwarfed by the Chimera, but it's still a good ship, and Darsh will be able to make use of it in many different ways in his businesses. Um, 
they do have to go a bit slower, the, the Chimera does, uh, but they estimate it's going to take eight days to get back to Kronear with the speed of the other ship, which is good and bad. They're going to be able to make it. They've got enough supplies. They were managed to gather a bunch of foodstuffs and supplies from the island before they sacked it. Uh, so there's more than enough supplies to get them back there, but that means Darsh will not be getting back before the seventh night. That does not make him happy. But the best he can do is get going. He doesn't want to leave the other ship astray just in case there's something else out there. He's been, he's been sailing around for a while looking for these pirates. And he has to go a lot slower. The more His ship could go two to three times as fast as this other one. It has taken some damage, too, from the battle. So it's not... If tip-top, it might even be a little bit better. But it's got a weak, malnutritioned crew in a boat built for minotaurs that's taken damage. Not going to be the fastest ship in this situation. But Darsh now, finally elated that he's solved this issue... Begins heading back to Kronear. And again, that was a big section of, Dor of Darsh stuff. Darsh was going to have his moment. We had to get to it. Darsh hasn't had a lot of combat based stuff yet. Um, but I wanted to give him a good section there. When I got to it, I didn't want to bounce away from that. I wanted him to do his whole thing. Um, there are some injuries. Uh, Garrig is able to heal some. Darsh keeps a good thing, a small selection of healing potions and salves and stuff on the boats. Uh, they use that for anybody that they can save, um, and so on. So, we are now going to shoot back to the lands of Serenity. Back to uh, Mercy. It's the fifth day. As I said, they spent. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot. To, I almost skipped over something. My bad. Almost missed something important. Woo! Dandy is about to leave on the second day, the end of the second day, it was actually technically the third day. On the third day, Dandy and uh, Lyman's about ready to shove off and they're ready to leave when Dandy receives a message from the Mage Tower asking her to come back to it. Her and Michael make their way there. Where once again they are taken in to meet Marissa. Marissa says that she's sought and studied and had her apprentices looking for anything they could find that would match the situation Dandy and her friends are in. And what they've come across is that they've learned that there is a magical artifact named the Dreamscape Circlet. She doesn't know if, what it really does. All she knows is that it supposedly is used by the Nightmare Lord to traverse the dreamscape. Dandy's question is, what's a dreamscape? And she goes, hey, dreamscape has always been more of a rumor. It's, a, it's When you dream, you don't dream, you're just in your head. But the dreamscape is supposedly a, a, a place between consciousness and unconsciousness where dreamers go. And supposedly there are creatures and beings and things that could live in there. And the Nightmare Lord is literally one of the two, two lords of the uh, dreamscape. Um, and this circlet supposedly is his and how he traverses the dreamscape. Now, why he might be interested in you or anything of that nature, I couldn't tell you. But uh, that's the only thing I could find. Dandy appreciates the information, says she will make sure she gets it 
to um, her friends as well. Uh, and that makes her way back to the ship where they hop on the Miss Dandelion and they start traveling towards Darstopia. It's a long trip for them because the Miss Dandelion is not that big of a boat and they're going quite a distance. But they're now going to Darstopia, hopefully to meet up with Darsh. Because Dandy is almost positive Darsh will totally die without her there to save him. Obviously. They found that information, though, in a book from an unidentified world she's not familiar with, so she goes and able to find any other information that would help. Then we go to fifth day. It is the fifth day of that week, and Sir Edward and the Knights of the Light are leaving Serenity to head back to Thorman. As much as he would like to stay and help, he was given a specific time period that he could be here. And, you know, especially now with the new threat of Oromon trying to be at the border, he feels it's important to get a, a, a hold, get the hold that they're building over there, or the keep that they're rebuilding, I should say, get it up and running in as much that it's there should it really be needed. Right? So she, he bids his daughter well, says he's very proud of her and all she's accomplished, and that the lands of Serenity uh, could not have a better leader. He also makes sure to tell her that he'll be sure to return for the wedding. And then with a tearful goodbye, you know, it's tough as warriors can be tearful. Uh, he says goodbye, and the Knights of the Light leave, heading towards the same place where Seth is, the same the border. So they have to go around that and down through the mountains to get down to Thorman where they're headed. That's fifth day. Ah, here we go. So, seventh day comes. Artemis and Mercy are once again gathered in the temple. Mercy is going to be spending the night here as well. She wants to be near Artemis, uh, just in case anything. She doesn't know what could happen in that regard. But to be on the safe side, she wants to be there. And so they kind of just sitting there. They're on, sitting on Artemis's bed together. They're just kind of sitting there, like laying down, talking. In the room with them is Miasha and Lucas and technically the baby and Te, uh, Tevin, their, their friend Tevin, the powerful healing clerk. He's there as well. And they're just kind of sitting there waiting to see what happens. They know that at any time it could kick in. I can't help myself. I hope you understand. I couldn't help myself. The two ladies start to feel drowsy, a little dizzy, and they can sense that they the, the unconsciousness as, as the, the light starts to fade out. But as they do, they hear voices in the hallway. Someone saying, I have to speak to them. And as they're about to fall asleep, they notice, they're looking at the doorway through their blurry eyes, Thakar, the mage, the head of the mage tower, comes in. He goes, wait, wait. Whatever you do, don't. And then they're unconscious. <laughs> I loved doing that to them. They hate it when I do that to them. He comes in, he goes, he sees them, he goes, whatever you do, don't. And they're unconscious. I, uh, 
I don't know if they saw it coming, uh, but I was very happy to do it because I'm a turd. So, just as before, in the moment they fall asleep, they awaken. And they find themselves in a dark room. They lean up, they look around, and sure enough, all four of them are there. Darsh, Dandy, Mercy, and Artemis. And in this small room, there's a light coming from the ceiling. No light source, just a light. And a small table. And on this small table is a small chest. Uh, Kromar, I will hit you up on that here in just a little bit. Yes. Actually, I'll, I'll take a moment. I'll do that real quick. So for the record, for Kromar, your, your new person. So merge worlds exist because of this. There was a world, and there were some magical artifacts. An evil person tried to use those artifacts and use their magic to become a god. In the middle of the spell that created that, a good person sacrificed himself to stop him. But the spell had already begun, and the magical power that we would take to create a god was unleashed, going throughout the universe, destroying every world in existence. And in a microsecond, bringing them all back together and grabbing chunks of every world from every reality and slamming them together to create one massive new world. That's merge worlds. People from different worlds, races that have never seen each other, all of that kind of stuff is together. If you get a chance, I, I would recommend uh, the very first episode of Merge World. I cover a lot of that there, if you never got to hear it. Uh, first and second episode, I, I cover all the details of how that happened, but that's the basic overview. So then everybody wakes up in this new world, and maybe half their house is gone, half their city is gone, half their country is gone. Nobody they know is gone. Where are they, and how do they get back home? That was the original quest for everybody. It all evolved into other stuff after that, but that's how it got started. But thank you for asking. That's, the, that's what merged worlds is literally all worlds merged together. And not every piece of every world came. Every There's a piece of every world in existence there. Some of them are small. Some of them are huge. Some there's multiple across the world itself. But it created a massive new planet. So they awaken in a dark room. Sitting on top of the little table with the light coming down to it is a small metal chest or lockbox. Probably the best, best way to say it. Looks more like a little decorative lockbox. And it glows. It glows with an inner light, kind of a, a holy glowing, you know, glowy light. You understand what I'm going with. And they know that it's important and that it is innately good. Something in this is innately good. And they know that even though they don't know what it is, there's nothing been more important than protecting that box and whatever's inside of it. Hey there. Hey, Stinky. So, Artemis steps forward and picks it up. Well, I appreciate that, Cromar. Thank you. <laughs> and picking it up again, she, she can feel the importance of whatever it is. But she knows she can't open it. That would put it in danger. As soon as she picks it up, the room lightens a bit more. What was just a dark room now is a stone room with a stone floor and a stone ceiling. And there's a wooden door 
not decorative, very plain, rounded at the top, set against the wall. Door looks slightly familiar. It's not, let me take it, it's not the door you guys are thinking. It's a door. But it, it's slightly familiar. It's the only way out. Our heroes, all four of them, step to it and open it. And step inside the large room. Tears come to Artemis's eyes at the sight of her chapel. It is now a dark, twisted perversion of its original beauty. The only beautiful, or the once beautiful stained glass windows lay in shards about the floors. The purple sky seen through their hollow frames. Most of the wooden pews are destroyed or hurled to the side of the room by some unseen force. The altar is now black, its decorations scratched and defaced. Dried blood stains run down its sides. Standing behind it is the demonic figure from your past dreams. But behind him is a sight almost too unbearable to hold. behold. There are four people on the wall. Their hands are tied above their heads, their feet not touching the ground. You can see they are clearly in pain. Hanging there is Flynn, Mercy's squire. Sasha, Darsha's sister-in-law. Weber, the dwarven hunter gentleman that they just, uh, Dandy and Michael just visited. And Tevin, the cleric friend that was left to protect Artemis's son. Greetings again, my friends, says the figure. I thought we might try a different motivation this time. Each one of them sees someone important. Someone important to them. And they step forward about to draw their weapons, but as they try to step forward, the figure raises its hand and they all notice something they didn't notice before. On the walls around them, these things, are little bluish-purple shapes that almost look kind of like blobs with, like, tentacles sticking off them. There's one right beside the head of each of their friends. As soon as they step forward, those tentacles quickly flash, grabbing onto the heads of the person, and each of the four people begin to scream. And the heroes stop and back up. And the screaming dies down, though the tentacles do not remove from their friends' heads. Delightful, aren't they? says the shadow figure. Nightmares themselves. Not nightmares, nightmares. M-E-E-R. Nightmares have the ability to dig into a person's mind through their dreams and cause pain and night terrors beyond anything a mortal could normally have. It's quite delicious. Literally, they're digging through their minds, deep inside. Oh, what's that, Dark Lord? Hi, Draven, sorry for tuning in. Had a bunch. Oh, no worries, Dark. I appreciate it. You're good, man. I had nothing. I thought that maybe we'd try something different. I'll admit... Many of the people that you surround yourself with are strong individuals. 
It took a while to find someone's mind who was defenseless or weak enough to break through. But sure enough, in all of your lives, there's always at least someone that I can reach out to. Give it to me, and I will let them free. Give it to me, and this is all over. At this point, you don't even know what it is you're fighting for. I assure you, it's nothing important to you. To you, it's something trivial, but to me, it means a lot. It means everything. And you are keeping it from me. And the longer you keep it from me, the more I'm going to have to hurt you and the ones you love. I can do this forever. And every time I get a little bit deeper, I get a little bit further than I did the previous time. And eventually, I will have everything that makes you who you are. Mercy goes, this is a dream. These are just figments of imagination, much like the creatures you've had us fight. We've fought things we know are dead. These aren't real. He goes, ah, a wise thought. You could be correct. But of course, if I can get into your dreams, what makes you think I can't get into others? But surely you don't believe me. I wouldn't either if I was in your shoes. Tell you what. Ask them anything you'd like. Ask them something that only they would know. Clearly, I would not have that information. Ask them anything. They think about it for a minute. They talk to each other. They're like, well, we could, we could try. And Dandy... Dandy says, I'm going to talk to Weber first. Darcy's like, I don't know. Weber's older of all of them. And I know he's a grisly guy, but he may not be able to survive this as long. Of the four of them, Tevin's in the most health. He's a cleric of healing. If anything, potentially, our goddess could save him. It hurts me that God, sorry, our God could save him. It hurts that Tavian hasn't already intervened in this. But... Maybe I can bring him to the light. Maybe together we can, you know, another powerful, because Devin's almost on par with her. He's the second most powerful cleric in that entire area. And he's, you know, got a little bit of vampire blood in him. So he's pretty strong, too, you know. They say, okay, Artemis, you can go first. Artemis turns and says to Tevin, goes... Tell me of the day you first wished to become a cleric. Tevin, out of breath, tired, clearly still feeling a little bit of pain, takes a moment, like he's thinking, and then begins to describe the exact situation. The day that he followed Artemis to the river, and Artemis thought he was going to profess his love to her, only to find out that what he was truly feeling was a, a calling to the gods and clerical duty. Every single detail, exactly like she remembers it. And she goes, you know, I, I never even told Draven about that. He's the only one, 
was Kevin and I were the only people there. We talked about it. Um, but that moment's you know kind of important to a cleric when you first come to that. Only he would know that. This causes some concerns. They start to talk together and the shadowy figure gets impatient. Maybe you need a little more motivation. And again, the tentacles start to writhe and their friends start to scream and experience savage pain. They try to move forward and find they can't. They can't go past a certain part of the chapel. There's something that's blocking them from moving forward. Darsh is angry, wails at it a few times. Mercy as well. Her magical morning starts popping into her hand, starts banging on that. Nothing gets through. After another moment, the screams die down. Give it to me. And I'll let them go. You're doing this to them. The longer we stand here, the more they have to suffer. And for what? Nothing. But a simple thing in your hands. Give it to me. And all this goes away. I'll have no need of you. You'll never see me again. Just give it to me. This will all be over. Darsh is about to speak to Sasha and Danny says, Wait! Weber! I remember the first time that Michael and I went on a hunt that you had told us about. What was the story I told you? Weber then takes a couple minutes, seems like he's thinking on it, a couple moments, and begins to tell the story. Hunting down a small group of zombies. But it's so odd the way he tells the story. He's excited about it. He's energetic. He's throwing in, he's having a hard time keeping his thoughts. He's jumping to the side and telling some other thing. Oh, and then this happened over there and you wouldn't believe this. And the butterflies attacked and I told Michael he shouldn't do, you told Michael he shouldn't do that. And he's very energetic and going on his stuff until he finally goes through the story. And his friends look at Danny and say, is that true? Was that what you, is that the story you told him? And Danny smiles and says, yes. It's exactly the story I told him. That's a kender tale. There's no way in the world he paid enough attention to remember all of that. Trust me, I can't get Michael to pay enough attention to me to tell me back my own stories. Sometimes I tell my stories, and I think they may be wrong, but he can't remember what I said the first time. How am I supposed to remember? And the friend stopped. And the shouty figure is quiet. Should we try again, says Darsh? And Arma says, no. They don't know anything. We're giving them the information. The four figures fade from the wall. The figure shakes his head. Resisting me is not going to help you. I am going to get what I want in the end. It doesn't matter what you do. The longer this takes, the more I have to make you suffer. Clever you may be, you're still going to lose. 
he starts, he fades from existence, and the little purple things with the tendrils disappear as well. The allies, the feeling of confidence for the first time in one of these dreams, turns and goes back to the door and walks out. And as they open the door and walk through, they feel themselves awaken. I can't tell you how excited it was that they actually figured that out. Those things weren't real. Your illusions meant to look real. And in the dream, it's your dream. You're asking a question, and your mind is the answer. When you ask someone a question you know the answer to, in your mind, that answer is there. In that dream, you are providing that information to the dream. So, of course, they're going to know anything that they ask. If they asked a question they didn't know, but that the other person would, that would have actually been another way that could have worked. Dandy's thing was pure happenstance. I hadn't expected that from Dandy. I expected it to be the other way. If they did figure it out, and say, okay, I know you said you're from, you, you, you lost your wife and, or something, how did it happen? They wouldn't have been able to answer that question because Dandy or whoever asked that question wouldn't have known that answer. That's how I expect them to turn up. Dandy asking to tell me the story, and sure enough, he would tell the story the way Dandy would tell the story, because that's how Dandy provided it. But they awaken. Once again, in their individual places, Artemis and Mercy are laying together in Artemis's room. The car and everybody else is there, relieved to see. Tevin, sitting there holding the baby who's asleep in his arms. No idea of what happened. Clearly it was not really Tevin that was in there. So, let's see. Here we go. So they leave the chapel and they return to the land of the Awakened. And it's day number one. So, it's 10.30. This is where we're going to call it for the day. Not quite a cliffhanger. Sometimes I like to leave it on a uh, cliffhanger. Not so much this week. This week, Darsh and Dandy have to try to get back to meet each other in Kronayar. Artemis and Mercy, they all have to work together to try to figure out what's causing this and how they can stop it. But, it looks like the car knew something. He tried to warn them before it was too late. So potentially, he might be able to lead them down a path that might be helpful. But we're right at 1024, right at the 1030 mark. I think that's a really good place to start. So, one, I'm going to take a couple minutes, though, to do something I don't normally get to do. The first thing I want to tell you guys is, again, remember that I mentioned at the beginning, that some of you folks weren't here, at the beginning of the stream... Um, oh, you make well, excellent, Corona. That's the best thing I can hope for. Win some over. And these things, if if watching them is not the, available to you, these are also available on iTunes and Spotify as an audio podcast. Usually takes me a few days to get it out there, but I just edit it into audio and put it up there for free. So if for some people it's easier when they're exercising or working out or whatever, uh, they prefer to listen to them instead of watch them. Um, that option does exist for anyone who's maybe interested. Uh, it's just merged worlds, all one word, same as this. 
on uh, Spotify, iTunes, or YouTube, of course. There are also links to all of that um, on my website, onlydraven.com. So next week, when we start off, we're not starting where this story ended. What I said, some of you guys weren't here at the beginning, but what I said was this. There is a Halloween-themed episode that literally in the book at this exact moment, I can't believe it worked out so well, this is exactly where it happened. And I like to make D&D episodes that are somewhat based around holidays when I have the opportunity. It's been a couple of Halloween ones. I've got a Christmas one or two. Um, so we're going to begin the next episode by stepping back in time a little bit. It's about six months before all of this happened. Six to eight months before all this kicked in. And Artemis and Mercy and some of the heroes of Serenity are going to do a little bit that a little bit of a Halloween themed adventure. I don't think it'll take the whole episode. We'll probably get right back into this, but it'll take at least an hour, I would say, maybe an hour and a half at the most. I have to do that one purely from memory. I cannot find the copy of it written anywhere. Um, but it doesn't have an effect on the story we're in, but it will have an effect on something that's going to happen in the future. So I have to have it set up before we get to that chapter. And again, this is how it worked back when we were playing Dungeons and Dragons. This is where we finished one episode. The next one was Halloween weekend. So when they showed up, I said, hey guys, we're going back eight months. And we spent the day playing the Halloween one. I designed it to be a one-day adventure. And we got done a little bit early, so we were able to jump back into the other story at the end of the day. That's kind of how I think we're going to be in the next stream. Um, so if you're listening to this one or watching this one, and next week you're listening, and you're like, wait a minute, this is complete. This doesn't sound right chronologically. It's I understand it's going to be that way. I will write it in the description, so hopefully people reading it will know that as well. Um, but we're going to have a, a little Halloween kind of themed thing. Uh, and then we will get right back into the story. But the Halloween thing does have important effects. So... I also dug out this binder, and I'm going to take just a couple minutes to show you guys this. This is the Magical Items and Artifact Binder. This is all the Magical Items and Artifacts that I've ever created, including charts and full-page descriptions of everything that they do. So these are all mine. The characters have some of these, uh, and some of these um, I may have thinking about uh, making them available with 5th edition stats as resources for other DMs who might want to use them. Um, so I've got everything from potions, rings, ring of insect minion. That's one of mine. Uh, staff of bubbles. Uh, let's see. Book of components. Cape of valor. Boots of charging. Starsh's boots. I made those. Bag of stones. Glove of immunities. Sheath of holding. The sheath of holding, I'm going to tell you about that one specifically. So imagine a dagger sheath that's a little bit too wide, right? It's like that long, right? It's a sheath. You can put any type of sword or knife into it, and it will fit. You can have a great sword, a dwarven or like big minotaur thick sword. The blade is this thick, and it will slide right into the sheath. The sheath, will go, the sheath will pull it in, and even though the sheath's this long, the whole just like a bag of holding. Any pictures? No, I'll be honest, I can't draw. Uh, I'm not good at that at all. But um, I may uh, speak with Shadowcast, who's the community artist. The uh, She does designs all of my merch art. Uh, she deserved the 
She helped me make the uh, logo for Merge Worlds. I do the design, but she drew it out for me. Uh, she does all of my art stuff for the channel. So um, I may talk to her. Plus, as I've mentioned, I'm also uh, starting... I'm designing a card game based on this. And some of these could very easily become items in the game. Um, so, Shield of Illusions. And that's just the magic items. That's not counting the artifacts. Whip of Entanglement. Torch of Flaring. Scroll of Messaging. Rod of Duplication. Dagger of Earth Bolt. Again, I just want to let you know I have some of these things. Oh, that's an artifact. Deuteronomus. I forgot about that one. This is actually for a completely different group. I can tell you about this one. Deuteronomus is a Vorpal Sword plus five. That's basically the most powerful sword you can get. Um, it's basically a paladin sword. Um, uh, but the hook is, is whoever picks it up from wherever it is, is its new wielder. And it talks to them, but only to them. And it will slowly change their alignment to turn them into a paladin. So you could be an evil rogue. If you're the one that picks this up, it will turn you into a lawful good paladin eventually. Um, I, I always write a snippet of its history and its purposes. So I'm going to read this one and we'll call it a day. History. Deronymus was created by an order of paladins over 2,000 years ago for their leader, Durin Lightbringer. When he was killed in battle 22 years later, it was stolen by a brigand, brigand who sold it to Derek Smythe, leader of the Thieves' Guild of Bruner. When the Thieves' Guild was wiped out by King Gorlin four years later, Deronymus was placed in the kingdom's treasury where it sat for 30 years till the kingdom was invaded and destroyed by Orog, Sharptooth, and the Ogre Nation. The sword bounced from place to place until it was lost. All of that stuff is the history of this. Is any of that have anything to do with Merge World? No. <laughs> it did, because all of those things were a world, and that's how these things get to Merge World. These things are on Merge World, even though they all have histories from their own world. Duranimus searches for a bear worth itself. When it first comes into possession, it will not reveal itself as an intelligent weapon until it has spent some time judging whether its new bear has at least the potential of a paladin. It will then act as a guide in conscience, slowly changing the PC's alignment to lawful good. If at any time the PC's alignment becomes evil or is made clear the PC will never be worthy, it will leave the bearer by arranging for itself to come into the possession by another. So it's an intelligent artifact. So again, I like to have a little bit of history on there because I think it's cool. Um, but I thought, I'm, I don't want to give them all the way here yet. I, I, I want to work them into 5th edition stats and put them up there, but I hadn't looked through that book in a while. So uh, that was kind of fun. All right, well... Um, that's it for today. So we're done here. Thursday is the one day we end a little bit early. And I spend some time hanging out with my wife. Um, so we've been going for right at two and a half hours. So I'd like to thank everybody for coming and letting me the chance to tell my story. Um, it's my favorite part of what I get to do is getting to share this. I've been running and writing this D&D campaign for close to 30 years. Um, and having the opportunity to share it with a vastly growing, huge new group of people uh, is, is just phenomenal. Uh, phenomenally fulfilling for me, so I appreciate that. Uh, if you liked this, whether you're watching it today or 10 years down the road, it'd be awesome if you click the like button. If you're new here, it'd be great if you'd hit subscribe. Um, again, this is available on iTunes and Spotify. Newest episodes are usually up before the next one, just depending on schedule. I try to have the new schedule up by Monday, uh, sometimes a little bit quicker. Um, 
But, you know, a lot of resources there. Uh, you can also follow me on the socials. There's a Merged Worlds Instagram account. Um, if you're new to the story, you might want to wait a little bit before you go there because some of the characters might be slightly spoilers for you at this point. Uh, but there is some uh, information about that on there as well. Uh, but yeah, I think that's a good spot. I enjoyed today. Hopefully you enjoyed the story as well. Uh, we'll be back again next Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern uh, for our next episode. This is an every Thursday thing. Uh, thank you all for coming. Special thank you, as always, to my members and my newest member, Crumber. Appreciate you for joining us. Uh, you folks who are members, uh, your continued support of the channel is what has enabled me to take the line, giant leap into being a full-time online creator. So thank you very much for that. As well as all the wonderful people who've been tipping and donating. Again, your support uh, has enabled me to make this a full-time gig. So thank you very much for that. Um, and extra special thank you, as always, to my moderators, who probably find me pretty stinky, but still hang out with me anyways. And I appreciate that. Bonk. More kitty butts. This one's midnight. This is a different kitty. All right, everybody. I'm going to call that a day. Thank you, Colonel. I appreciate that. You guys all have yourselves a wonderful day. And we will see you uh, tomorrow morning at 10 p.m. Sorry, 10 a.m. It's a four-hour Skyrim stream. Back again tomorrow night at 9.30 p.m. for some Minecraft. Sky Factory 3. So you kids have yourselves a wonderful day. And I will see you all again very, very soon. Thanks so much for coming.